This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. From the first Republican presidential primary debate. Now, unlike the general election debates, which for the last, uh, well, actually, the, the Trump-Hillary debates were pretty interesting. But by and large, the general election debates, with the exception of 1992 for obvious reasons, are incredibly boring. They are stilted. They are predictable. They're corporate-funded dueling press conferences, really. Unlike that, the primary debates can be quite interesting because you have a situation where the candidates that are at the back of the pack are doing whatever they can to uh, stand out in some way. Usually that involves throwing some sort of bomb in the direction of the front runner. You have a situation where a lot of the candidates you may not necessarily know that well yet. You're getting to see and hear for the first time. You have more candidates on the stage generally, so you have this sort of mad scientist style political laboratory where there's uh, mixing and matching the likes of which you haven't seen the primary debates in some ways remind me and i know the analogy fails but it still always reminds me of this it reminds me of the days when the all-star game was still interesting the pre-interleague play all-star game where you could see all these candidates mix it up with one another i remember you know in 2008 for instance there were very interesting debates on both the republican side and on the democratic side on the on the democratic side you saw hillary clinton mixing it up not only with barack obama but with dennis kucinich and with mike gravel and with john edwards very and uh, very interesting debate Overall, on the Republican side, you saw Rudy Giuliani mixing it up with Fred Thompson and uh, people like uh, Duncan Hunter and Mitt Romney. It was just really interesting to see. So the big question is, is the debate next Wednesday going to be the most interesting debate or the least interesting debate? My money, and I'm going to get into this a little later in the fourth hour of our program with Brian Kilmeade. My money is on the latter. That is, it is not going to be that interesting because as of now, it appears that uh, Donald Trump is not going to participate. Now, I completely understand why Trump, with the kind of lead that he's got thus far, would not want to participate. Because why give any of your opponents an opportunity to attack you? Clearly, nothing he's doing, including four separate criminal indictments, is doing anything to diminish his standing in the polls. So why would he open himself up to the slings and arrows of a debate stage? Who So it's interesting the qualifications that the RNC is using to determine who's in this debate. There's two criteria. You have to have at least 40,000 donors 
And you also have to be at at least 1% in the polls. So far, the candidates that have met both aspects of this, as I understand it, are Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, and Mike Pence. There are other candidates that are not yet qualified for one or both of those uh, candidates. Doug Bertram, for instance, has met the donor threshold. I don't know that he's met the polling threshold. Uh, Perry Johnson, same situation. He's met the donor threshold, but not the uh, not the polling threshold. The interesting thing about this, in addition to the two criteria that the uh you know that you have to meet the number of donors and the place in the polls you also have to sign this pledge that you're going to support whomever the republican candidate is ultimately whoever the nominee is the chairperson of the rnc ronna mcdaniel talked about this with uh, chris wallace a while ago It's the Beat Biden pledge. And what we're saying, and the debate committee has met for over two years, people from Alaska to Illinois to Tennessee, is if you're going to stand on the Republican National Committee debate stage, you should be able to support the nominee and Beat Biden. Are you saying even Donald Trump? Everybody has to sign the Beat Biden pledge. Everybody. It's across the board. The rules aren't changing. We've been very vocal with them. This idea of this pledge to support the nominee or what Ronna McDaniel calls the beat Biden pledge is so absolutely ridiculous, foolish and meaningless that I can't understand why anybody is taking this remotely seriously. Now, Donald Trump, to his credit, he has said publicly there are several candidates running that I know I couldn't support. So why would I? Sign the the pledge. For instance, you've seen how Donald Trump talks about people like Chris Christie. Fifty nine percent. And the others are at like 12. One is at 12. I think that's the sanctimonious. But he's rapidly being caught by Ramishwamy. Who's good? No, no, Christie's he's eating right now. He can't be bothered. You've seen what he says about people like Ron DeSantis or as he calls him, Ron DeSanctimonious. Ron DeSanctimonious. His polling skyrocket, and DeSantis won the Republican primary 57 to 37. He was down so many points, and all of a sudden he wins by 20. He was already looking for jobs. But he did it because of President Trump. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you very much. Trump is not the only one that has made clear he can't support the other people running if he's not the nominee. Chris Christie just yesterday on CNN with Jake Tapper. I think that what Republican voters have to start to ask themselves is two things. One, is someone out on bail in four jurisdictions really our best chance to beat Joe Biden? And secondly, are we really going to continue to act as if this is normal conduct? It's not. So even if you disagree with some of the criminal charges here, if you think they were an overreach, or as I think on this one, they're unnecessary, it doesn't get rid of the underlying conduct, which is what we should be discussing in the campaign, which is, does this man have the temperament and the character to beat Joe Biden and to be president of the United States again? And I I firmly believe the answer to that 
is no. That is clearly not the only instance in which Chris Christie has bashed Donald Trump. In just about every media appearance he gives, the only thing he talks about is bashing Trump. I still don't know what his position is on anything. I, I know he supports Ukraine's g- government and the Zelensky government. I get that. Okay. Other than that, I don't know where he is on a single other public policy issue except that Donald Trump is a bum. And look, guys, we can't pretend that Donald Trump is a man of character. This is a guy who paid off a porn star. This is a guy who has regularly lied. This is a guy who has abused people who have worked for him. You might remember in the um, CBS Sunday morning piece on uh, Chris Christie a couple of weeks ago, he was asked by Robert Costa, CBS News, he was asked, are you going to support Donald Trump? Are you going to do what you did Six years ago or seven years ago, are you going to say that he's a bum and say that you're against him and then just uh, get in line and be the first person to support him and uh, clap like a seal that um, in 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 appreciation for every syllable that he utters? And he said repeatedly, I think three or four times in a row, absolutely 100 percent no chance that he would support Trump. So you have. Christie, who doesn't want to sign the pledge because of of Trump, but ultimately he'll sign it. And he said essentially that he will take it as seriously as Donald Trump took this pledge years ago. Trump is refusing to sign it. Trump is the only person in these debates that people really care about at this point, at this point. Maybe uh, people general again, not you, because chances are, if you listen to this radio station, you probably follow electoral politics closer than the average bear. However, I think the average ordinary member of the public, they don't necessarily know who Vivek Ramaswamy is. They don't necessarily know who Tim Scott is. They don't necessarily know who Nikki Haley is. And this these debates are the first opportunity that voters are going to have to see who these candidates are. And I just don't think people are going to pay attention without Trump. So is the RNC really going to keep Trump out of these debates if he refuses to sign the loyalty pledge? Now, I give credit to Trump for not signing this loyalty pledge. Because the easy thing for him to do would be what Christie appears to be likely to do or what he's toying with the idea of doing, which is to just sign it and then to just ignore it. I remember when they made a big issue of this in 2016. You remember they uh, they had a big press conference with the then chair of the RNC, Reince Priebus, at Trump Tower with a big signing ceremony of Trump signing the loyalty pledge. I said at the time, and I was right then, and I firmly believe this now, What are they going to do if Trump violates his pledge? What are they going to do if Trump doesn't get the nomination and then chooses to run as a third party or independent candidate? Who's going to come after him? The pledge police? Are they going to send the pledge police to to Mar-a-Lago to uh, arrest him, uh, getting in line behind the Georgia State Police, the uh, FBI, and everybody else? No. These pledges are meaningless. And I remember... um, I think it was Bernie Carrick who said to me back in 2016 when Trump had won the nomination and it was clear that a lot of the people that he had just bested were not going to support him. Um, Jeb Bush, for instance, did nothing to support Trump and he had signed the pledge to support whoever the nominee was. And Carrick said to me, I guess it only goes one way with these bleepers. And the same thing is true this year. This pledge is the stupidest thing in the world. I don't know what the proper criteria is. Maybe it is some combination of polling and donors. But to keep candidates 
any candidate, but especially the leading candidate, out of this debate or these debates, because now they're already looking at who's qualified for the second debate, for them to keep candidates out of these debates because they're not signing some dopey pledge, which is not worth the paper it's printed on, it's so incredibly self-defeating. But it's um, we're now seeing a possibility where the leading Republican candidate for president may not participate in any Republican primary debates. I don't know in a non-incumbent year that that's ever happened since um, since we've had competitive primaries and televised debates. It's a as a Brian Sachik, a Republican strategist who had worked on the campaign uh, of Donald Trump previously. He told The Hill there's now it's a distinct possibility that the Republican nominee for president could simply decide to shun the RNC itself. When a candidate refused to play by the rules, it obviously weakens the RNC's position. I got news for you. I uh, and I, I would like to vote for I voted for Trump, but I would like to vote for someone other than Trump this time around. But I hope Trump does not sign the pledge. Let them say, yeah, the candidate that's supported by uh, 50 to 60 percent of Republican primary voters. We don't want him in our debate because he's refusing to sign the stupid pledge. This is the most ridiculous thing in the world, because the reason I hope Trump does this is because these party organizations, the party apparatus, the party structure is totally meaningless. It is totally meaningless. And I've tried to stress this to candidates on a local level, the party organization, the party as an institution, is not what it used to be. In the days when political parties could get people jobs and had real clout and real, uh, there was a distinct kinship, a relationship between the voter and the values of a political party, the party meant something. Now, and this goes just as well, if not more so, for the Democrats, the party as an institution, as a structure, is meaningless, is meaningless. We, you have uh, ideological norms which have been totally upended, and I just don't know what function these parties really serve. And I remember a conversation that I had, and that, uh, this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'm going to take your calls at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222, three open lines if you want to comment. I remember a conversation that I had with uh, General Michael Flynn during the presidential campaign in 2016. And in spite of all his issues, in spite of all his controversy, I have a, a lot of respect for General Flynn as a military leader and as a strategist. I read his book and I, um, I, I've always been impressed with General Flynn. And I'd like to get him back on the show. In fact, I've invited him a couple of times, but uh, I don't know. Maybe he thought our last conversation was a little too heated. So be it. But uh, General Flynn said back in 2015 or 2016 to me, Donald Trump is going to be the person that is blowing up the two-party apparatus. And he said, that's not a bad thing. And I think this is the next step of that. Every 150 years or so, the political parties, sort of the, the two-party structure gets blown up and reborn into something else. I think we may be ready for a little blowing up of these parties and the emphasis that the so-called leadership of the Republican so-called party 
is placing on this dopey pledge, I think is the next example of that. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment, uh, agree, disagree. My position, to be very clear, is this pledge is stupid. The RNC should back away from it. And um, I don't know how many people are going to care about these debates in terms of uh, if Donald Trump's not in them. I mean, I may watch it, but I'll watch it while I'm doing something if it happens to be on. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank, thanks for taking the call. I think that they should have the pledge, but it shouldn't disqualify you from the attending the debate. You should have an option of signing that so that the people will be able to see if you're you know, committing to supporting any other candidate. But I think it's extremely undemocratic to basically force candidates to have to sign on such a pledge. And they're, you mentioned that they're not allowing Trump to attend the debate. He doesn't want to attend the debate either way. I think he's going to have a rally going on at the same time. Um, and that's going to make things way more interesting. But it's true. If he, he doesn't attend the debate, uh, Trump changed uh, entertainment politics. And w- when he's, like, going to die, it's going to be really hard to get people to watch politics and news as a whole because he bought, he brought it to a whole new level. Uh, but I, I, I do think Trump should attend the debate. I don't know if he should do this one. Uh, you, you once spoke about Mike Huckabee's position on debating, right? where the candidates get to have two minutes and you don't need the stupid moderators asking the questions. Um, And I think Trump should reach out to Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy and the others and say, I'm willing to do a debate, but not with, uh, you know, any of these uh, establishment groups that are are setting up rules and having the questions asked and the topics covered that they want to cover. We'll do it with uh, the mics shut off after two minutes. Each of us get a chance to say what we want and respond to each other with two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. And I think uh, Ron DeSantis will be open to that because he's dying. Oh well, of course he Trump. would. He would debate Trump in uh, you know blindfolded and uh, with with uh, you know with earplugs if need be. He's desperate to get any sort of uh, any sort of opportunity to uh, get get a hold of Trump's uh, base. Mm -hmm. I like your idea to make the pledge optional, not to make it disqualifying, because this way people can say, um, all right, right, I'm pledging to support the Republican nominee, and this person isn't. Makes sense. Makes sense. The the thing that I don't understand about what you're saying, though, is if – now, I agree with you. It would be nice to see Trump debate. But if you're Trump and you're this far ahead, why would you debate? What's the advantage? I agree with you that it's strategically not smart, but we also have to think about what's democratic. And I think that, uh, you know, for Trump to say I'm ahead in the polls, I'm not going to give these people the same level, you know, level the playing field and give them a chance to ask me the questions when if, you know, there's a chance these debates are going to split people's minds, uh, he should give the people, the American people, the choice to change their minds from him to other candidates. And if the debate does that, then so be it. The democratic process is that the American people choose who they want to be the president. And if Ron DeSantis has some tough questions to ask President Trump about his ability in the general election, then let him ask it and, you know, do the debate just so that the American people should be able to then decide. Yeah. And if they disqualify you, then so be it. Alex, thank you. Um, I, I just... I don't think from a strategic point of view, it makes a lot of sense to debate. You know, it used to be in 2000, I remember in the Republican primary season that year, George W. Bush skipped the first debate and he got criticized like crazy for skipping the first debate. Now, the fact of the matter is 
Bush was not as good of a debater as all of the other, not all, but almost all the other candidates running. Uh, Gary Bauer, Steve Forbes, John McCain, Alan Keyes, Orrin Hatch. I mean, all these guys, any one of them would clean uh, George W. Bush's clock in a, in a debate. Not to say that uh, he's not intelligent, he certainly is, but as the, you know, he, sometimes debate skills don't go hand in hand with intelligence. DeSantis uh, is another good example of a guy that happens to not be a good debater. But what they showed at the time, if, if memory serves, is that Republican primary voters would think less of Bush for refusing to debate. I think the thing that's clear with Trump is if he doesn't debate, no one cares. No one cares. His base is solid, and they want to vote for him anyway, whether he debates or not. So I uh, I don't know if I were advising Trump what what advantage there would be to debating. But I uh, maintain that this this pledge is so it's not only useless; it's so incredibly dopey. Are they really going to say if Trump wants to show up to that second debate that he can't? If he if he's not going to sign this meaningless, unenforceable, dopey pledge, I mean, think of how stupid this is. And yet, this is the leadership of the Republican Party. My goodness, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We will continue with your comments, questions, thoughts at eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano, going to get to uh, your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Kenneth is off uh, today. He didn't tell me until after the show yesterday that he was uh, not going to be here. I think he wanted to. He didn't want me to tease him or anything. But uh, apparently he's on vacation. I don't know if he wants his location revealed. Did you guys cover it in the podcast where he's going? We did not. We're going to cover it today. Though. Oh, okay. So can we say where he is, or I don't want to. I don't want to dox him or anything. Yeah, he's in Puerto Rico, as I understand. That is right? correct. I didn't know either until yesterday. Yeah, he was very sneaky no with that whole thing. All of a sudden, he's like, "Oh, I'm not going to be in." What do you mean you're not going to be in? Yeah, I'm on vacation. Yeah, it was what? very surreptitious the way he handled that whole. And that's thing. when I, I did. Did you tell Frank? He goes, "I'm about to." Yeah. So he told me right before he told you. Yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Clearly, he made a decision to. Keep it close to the vest, but uh, yeah, I don't it was very he, odd. I don't know what he's doing in Puerto Rico that he didn't want us to know or to ask him about. Yeah, and then I asked, oh, who are you going with? Oh, it was some friends. 
<laughs> yeah. He goes, my boys. Yeah, That's what he him. said to me. All right, All right. Well, sitting in for uh, Kenneth for the next two days is uh, going to be a gentleman who is apparently named Jake. Hello, Jake. Hello and good morning to you. Oh, boy. I I heard about you. I heard you're very enthusiastic and eager, and so far that appears to be true. Oh, thank you. I, I'm, I'm enjoying being here so far. Thanks for having me. There's still plenty of time for that to change. <laughs> Just wait and see. So what's your story, Jake? Are you are you, uh, you you in school still? Are you done with school? What's your deal? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm, I'm going into my third year at uh, Hofstra University. I study video and television, and I work for my college's radio station. They have a terrific radio station over thank there. Thank you. I, uh, I am always really impressed with them uh, when I go there for the talkers convention every year. And, I was there, uh, yeah. I was helping out Mr. Harrison this year, and I helped him out last year. Yeah, he's a, a terrific guy and a, and a good friend. Um, but have we met before today? Uh, it's possible we've met before. I was uh, helping uh, Mr. Harrison at Talkers last two years when they've had it at Hofstra. I, I help uh, with the hosts. All right, the, but you don't remember stage. meeting me, right? It's possible. I've been running around a lot, so okay. Because I don't remember meeting you, and this way I won't feel bad. If that's you, good, we, it's good. We've never yeah. met. All right. Well, welcome aboard. Thank you. Uh, how are you adjusting to these uh, these nighttime hours? Well, I've been uh, sleeping uh, a, a lot during weird times of the day, falling asleep during meals. It's been great. All right. Well, uh, good luck uh, next couple of days. So, Matt Blaze, what do you do when um, when Kenneth's not here? Are you going to have Jake do the podcast with you and Elias today? That is the plan. That's the plan. The plan is whoever's here that will do the podcast. Even if you're not here? Well, they tried that once when I wasn't here. <laughs> it didn't work out? In my, It was all right. But, I mean, I am the anchor of the podcast. So, without me, <laughs> it's just you don't know what's going to happen. And people say I have an ego. All right. Okay. God bless you. 800-848-9222. Welcome aboard, Jake. Uh, let me say hello to Frankie in Highlands. Hello, Frankie. Yeah, hi. Hi, Frank. Um, yeah, nothing but admiration. Um, Thank you. for you and your show. Thanks. Uh, uh, think about uh, a candidate coming in as an independent and he kind of, he or she, um, uh, comes in as late as March in 2024. And he comes in and he blows away both the Republicans and the Democrats. And, um, and he, he actually becomes voted. He or she becomes voted as president of the United States for 2025. And uh, what he, what what his platform is is first and foremost is to stop profiteering uh, for war. I mean, and um, and 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 prove that the real profiteering in this history that can be done in this history that could never be done before is to prove that profiteering in peace. That peace becomes providence. Yeah, Frankie, um, I love I love the idea, Frankie, and uh, I think this year with the with the uh, infrastructure that No Labels is putting into place, this is actually one of the rare instances where a third party candidate could come in late in the game and uh, potentially get on the ballot in enough states to win. But um, you know, I think a lot of the people, you know, the, the ideal candidate that would 
be able to run on the kind of message you're describing is someone like a Tulsi Gabbard. Now, if uh, a Robert Kennedy goes third party or a Donald Trump goes third party, there's a chance they might be able to uh, hone into that kind of a message as well. But uh, I don't know that there's necessarily going to be a, a party infrastructure for them. I mean, if you listen to what No Labels is all about, they seem very, very establishment. I know that seems counterintuitive for a, a group that's putting forward a third party ticket, but they are. They're, um, they're really, I guess the way I would define their ideology, and I like what they're doing, is I would define it as kind of being a corporate friendly centrism. The kind of candidates they're talking about, John Huntsman, Larry Hogan, Joe Manchin, they're not anti-military industrial complex at all. I mean, I think it was Chris in the Catskills that called last week and said, brought up the idea, what about a Tulsi Gabbard and Jesse Ventura ticket? Now, I I will tell you, for all their faults, wild horses could not stop me from voting for a Tulsi Gabbard, Jesse Ventura ticket. I don't know that we're going to see that. Um, I hope so. I'd love to see something like that. Hey, uh, it was great to meet a bunch of you last night at the uh, Doug McIntyre event out on Long Island. Doug McIntyre was here in uh, either in yesterday or the day before, I think two days ago. And he was here with his wife, Penny Pizer. He's got a new book out called Frank's Shadow, which I, I have read, and it's terrific. It's a wonderful book. It's kind of short, which is perfect for me when uh, I can't find enough hours in the day to be able to read. But uh, it was uh, a really nice event, and I was uh, I agreed to host the Q&A. The event started at 6 o'clock, right? So I left my home at 4 o'clock. I figure... F- Two hours is going to be more than enough time to get all get out there. It's only Nassau County, right? And sure enough, I got stuck in this traffic quagmire, and I did not get out there until 6.23. So I was 23 minutes late. So I felt really what? guilty. I felt really guilty about that, but they were able to start without me. Doug did a reading of some of the chapters of the uh, of the book, which seemed to go over well with people. And then we had a nice Q&A with uh, questions not only from me but from the audience, and it was great to meet a lot of listeners, some of whom I've uh, I've seen on the Facebook group and some of whom have even called into the program from time to time. I'll tell you one complaint a lot of people had is that uh, they did not they do not like uh, some of the commentary that comes from my colleague Curtis Lewa. I told them the same thing I tell everybody on the air, which is that uh, Curtis and I are very good friends and uh, nobody should take anything Curtis says seriously, least of all about me, because it's just I think it's just <laughs> fun and it's his way of uh, promoting this show. But people get really annoyed by it. So I will tell you again the same thing that I told the folks that I made. It's like, don't get annoyed by it. Don't worry about it. Don't get bothered by it because it doesn't bother me. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't bother me, it shouldn't bother you. So then... I, um, we wrap up about eight o'clock and I, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten dinner or even lunch. I said, uh, all right, well, let me try and get to a, a, a diner or something. And if there's one thing I'm a sucker for, it's a diner right up the block from where this bookstore is. There was kind of an old school diner. And obviously I know where that's going. I am a diner fanatic. I will take a diner over a gourmet five-star restaurant 
any day of the week. I am a diner guy. I love everything about the diners. I love the way they look, the way they smell. I love the fact that you can order pancakes or oatmeal or twin lobster tails, and it immediately comes out in, in 10 minutes, no matter what. I love the whole diner experience, and it kills me that in my area, you have fewer and fewer diners every year, in part because of inflation, in part because of other issues. And it also kills me that a lot of diners that we do see these days, they don't act very much like diners anymore. Meaning the first thing that should be the defining characteristic of a diner is it's got to be open 24 hours. And more and more diners are not open 24 hours, and that is a capital B bummer. So I go to this diner by myself which is the worst thing that can happen because when I go to, I have such a difficult time ordering in any restaurant. I waffle and I go back and forth and I can only decide at the last possible minute when the waiter comes. Now, when I'm at a dinner with three or four other people, I make my decision about what I'm ordering when the waiter comes to the table based on whatever one else is ordering. I can't order the same thing that anyone else is ordering. So I take the three or four options that I have in my head and whatever has not been ordered, I will make the decision last minute. Now, when I'm by myself at a diner and they have a whole panoply of things that I want to order, I am just helpless, helpless. So I sat at the counter and get some water and I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to go breakfast. And the guy comes over. I don't know if he's Albanian or Mexican, but uh, he had a little bit of an accent, not a strong accent. Seemed like a very nice guy. He said, all right, what are you going to have? I said, and, and I'm clearly looking at the menu, and he sees that I'm struggling. And But now I feel the pressure because he's standing there. And I said, all right, I am going to have the... And I still don't have my mind made up as I've begun the sentence. And I'm hoping that the words will come to me. And I say, I'm looking at breakfast. I'm feeling breakfast. And I have it narrowed down to about 12 different breakfast options. And I say, all right, I will have the huevos rancheros. I'll have the huevos rancheros. He said, okay, how do you want the eggs? And I said, oh, man. I said, all right, maybe... And I gave him a look. I said, maybe poached. And he gives me a look. I said, because he, he didn't react to poached. I said, well, what do you recommend? He said, I don't know. You could do over easy. And that was not what I was thinking. For whatever reason, it just wasn't what I was thinking. I said, all right, I'm sorry. You have to come back. You have to come back. I'm not ready. I need another minute. So I go back <laughs> looking at this menu. And they have a section for... um like breakfast wraps and things like that. And they have a Greek wrap. And it comes with, it looks like it's eggs with uh, tomato and feta. I said, that looks great. Looks like it's healthy, healthy enough anyway. Looks like it's not too filling. It looks like it's not too expensive. I go to, they have an ATM machine, so I, I or ATM, excuse me. So I go to the ATM and make sure I have enough money in my account to order whatever I'm going to have. And uh, sure enough, I do. So then I go back to the table. I said, okay, I'm going to have the Greek wrap. He says, do you want potato salad or French fries? I thought, that's odd. That's an odd choice for a breakfast wrap. And uh, I said, well, not, neither of those were really grabbing me. I said, uh, can I have mashed potatoes? 
but also a side of cottage cheese. He says, yes. Great, great. He goes away, comes back a couple of minutes later with some coleslaw and a pickle. Fine pickle. Not a great pickle, but a fine pickle. Very good coleslaw. And I'm thinking, all right, now I'm in business. I I know what I'm doing. I was watching a a video of a, a commentary on the Trump indictment or something. I was watching something that I was informed, being informed about. I was th- starting to plan the show. And then he comes back and he brings me something with, with chicken on it, some sort of chicken wrap. I said, whoa. I said, what is this? He says, that's the Greek wrap. I said, I don't believe so. This is with tomato and feta. Now, there's a little bit of a language barrier here. I said, no, you know, now I have my heart set on breakfast. I'm going to order this. I'm not going to eat this grilled chicken wrap. And I put it to the side. And I said, uh, he also brings my cottage cheese. Oh, so I put it to the side. And I said, I certainly don't mind paying for this, which I certainly did. But I certainly don't mind paying for this. But I ordered the the Greek wrap. I said, let me see the menu again. And I show him what I ordered. And uh, they, they, the, one of the other waitresses that's a little better with English said, oh, did you specify it was the Greek wrap for breakfast? I said, no. We were having a breakfast discussion, and I said the Greek wrap. So is it my fault that you have a restaurant where there are two different items that are called the Greek wrap? I mean, what is this? It's like having two people named Adam Clayton the Powell the Fourth walking around. Outrageous. So, uh, so they were cool. They brought me my... Uh, Greek wrap uh, that in the breakfast variety and uh and it was it was quite good but I always have such a a difficult time ordering at these uh, at these diners I I really do. Do you think it's just too much choices? No, like, but I love the choices. The, the problem the, is going by the, myself because there's no pressure. There's no pressure to make the decision. And you and cuz you know if you have four things and somebody else orders something that's in your list, you're not going that eliminates exactly. one of those things. Right. And I don't have that when it's just me by myself. So. All right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Martine is on Staten Island. Hello Martine. Hi Frank. First of all, as always I love your show. Thank you. And, that's um, nice of you. Appreciate that. And thanks for taking my call. I like to be listened to. Um, I want to. I think I have a, a. There's a different strategy about signing the pledge to support the nominee. Um, you remember when Kamala Harris was running, was uh, Biden's running mate. She was asked, "How come you smashed him and now you're running together with him?" And she said, "That was the primaries," and she was laughing. So I think that most of the people say they won't uh, support the the nominee. Who at the end would like to to support the nominee? But they need a way out. They need a way to get over the ladder. So let's say someone like Chris Christie, if he's keeps, he keeps saying now that Trump is a bum, but when it comes to the time when, when let's say if Trump is the nominee, hope so, is um, he will be able to say then that he is supporting him, A, because he's better than Biden, and B, he pledged to do that. So he won't be looked as a flip-flopper. He would be saying they're giving him an opportunity to to have a way down the, down the ladder, you know, if he wants to support him, we'll say, well, I, I pledge to do that. You know, that is actually a very astute observation um, where basically this pledge is the off-ramp for the vitriolic primary rhetoric that we hear from the different candidates. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, uh, Martin. It's a good point. I still, uh, I still think, first of all, I don't think Donald Trump would be – 
would be moved by that at all. If he's not the nominee, there is no way. I mean, I cannot see him supporting DeSantis. I can't see him supporting Christie. I can't see him supporting Mike Pence. I could see him supporting Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, maybe even someone like uh, like Nikki Haley. The others, I don't know. But I can't see him supporting those guys. And I can't see him saying ever, well, I was not going to support these guys, but now I am because of this dopey pledge that they made me sign to debate. Now, in the person of Chris Christie, Christie will, of course, support Donald Trump. He will. Uh, There's no doubt about it. No doubt at all about it. Christie, you, he sticks his finger in the wind and goes with whichever direction the wind blows, right? I mean, that's the, been the hallmark of his entire career in public life. And that might be a good excuse for him that, hey, look, I signed this pledge. Sorry. I got to do it. People do that in politics, uh, all the time. You know, uh, they say, well, they'll have two friends that are running for office and uh, the same office. And you say to the friends, you know, I'm sorry. I pledged to the party uh, when they endorsed me that I would back the whole party's slate of candidates. Well, meanwhile, it's questionable how uh, how often that they do that. To, you know, I remember when we had the Reform Party, when Curtis and I were in the leadership of the Reform Party, candidates loved blaming us for something that they didn't want to do anyway. For instance, if there was, a say, a Democratic primary or a Republican primary and the Reform Party endorsed uh, Joe Blow and then Joe Blow, Joe Blow didn't win his party's primary, they would say, well, no, Joe Blow didn't want to endorse the person that won. But Joe Blow would say, well, I gave my word to Curtis and Frank and the Reform Party that I would stay in the race till the end. Meanwhile, I mean, if they told us, you know, I really want to back the Democrat, then they could have. <laughs> but uh, they used us as the excuse to do whatever they wanted to do anyway. So that's an interesting observation. Hey, Elliot Gordon is uh, going to be here in about 10 minutes. We're going to chat with him. Uh, we'll stroll down memory lane and uh, we'll uh, take your calls on uh, on this and everything else at 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Appreciation Day, and this song is Black Cat by Janet Jackson. We have uh, a black cat in our house. It's uh, both uh, both of my wife and my favorite cat, and uh, it's a beautiful black cat. And uh, my wife said that going forward, she's only adopting black cats. And unfortunately, the black cats have a very difficult time being adopted because of this uh, ridiculous superstition that the black cats are bad luck. So. Happy Black Cat Appreciation Day uh, to all the black cat owners out there. Hey, you know what I've noticed? And this has now been borne out in statistical analysis. 
women are getting drunk like crazy, probably because they have to deal with uh, men like us. The gender gap between men and women dying from alcohol is getting smaller. Research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association last month found that the rate of alcohol-related deaths among U.S. women are growing faster than among men, a pronounced shift that is alarming public health experts. So the analysis, which looked at 20 years of CDC data, found that from 2018 to 2020, alcohol-related mortality rates for women jumped nearly 15%, while men's rose just under 13%. Men are still about three times more likely to die from alcohol-related deaths, but the bottom line is women are drinking more. Now, why? What's making women drink more? Part of it is these targeted marketing campaigns and all those, you know, T-shirts, all those memes on the Internet, uh, wine o'clock or the Etsy shirts that kind of celebrate uh, rosé all day, things like that. And they say this could play a big role marketing in pushing women who want to appear successful to top off their glasses the way men do, in the same way that tobacco companies latched on to women's liberation to advertise cigarettes in the 60s. Catherine Keyes, a professor of epidemiology at Columbia University, told NBC News that middle-aged, high-income, and educated women binge drink the most. So um, I read in the Morning Brew newsletter, women really can have it all, even cirrhosis and liver disease. Doctors believe that women's higher body fat percentage, hormonal fluctuations, and other traits make their organs more susceptible to alcohol's health risks. So be careful. You know, I enjoy an occasional drink as much as the next guy, but... um Maybe not as much as the next gal. Be careful. 800-848-9222. Two open lines if you want to jump on board. Sean is in Pearl River. Hello, Sean. Uh, Jack Daniels should throw a banana for your pies out. Go be candy. Go be candy. Go be candy. Thank you, Sean. See, that's, that's a, that's Jake being a rookie here. He's not learned how to root out all the Steve from Manhattan voices. Russell is in North Carolina. Hello, Russell. Uh, that was interesting, Frank. I um, hey, uh, I actually got into voting my first election, which was 1992, and I was all rah rah George H. W. Bush. And, you know, if they have an R after their name, I was into it. And then uh, 2008, Ron Paul actually really opened my eyes to so much. You know, the military-industrial complex and all that. And, um, you know, and they asked him, they asked Ron Paul back then, you know, will you vote for whoever the nominee is? And he said, kind of, you know, alluding to what you're talking about. And he said, well, it depends who the nominee is. I'm not going to just say, yes, I'll right, vote for of whoever. Because he's an intelligent the person. Nominee is. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so it's like, no, I don't I don't get into this whole, well, if he's a Republican, we'll vote for him. And exactly. Russell, yeah. I, I completely agree with you and Ron Paul on that one. And it, uh, 
it's uh, it's just dopey. You 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 can't pledge fealty to a label, right? I mean, unless we're talking about sports teams, okay. Maybe you could say you'll always root for the Mets, but uh no, I mean, I think it's just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Hey, by the way, I had thought that I solved the 1-800-Flowers mystery yesterday. So two days ago, Tuesday morning, we got this beautiful gift box from 1-800-Flowers. No note really or anything other than saying it was from them. It included a personalized cooler bag, a uh, really nice personalized pisc- pic- uh, picnic blanket, and a, a good basket of goodies. Really nice. And... I couldn't figure out why they sent this to me. And then one listener emailed that I denounced them back in June. And I figured, oh, all right, mystery solved. They were trying to smooth things over because I denounced them. Well, I heard from someone at our radio station today, or or yesterday technically, that that was not the case at all. That the owner of 1-800-Flowers is just a huge fan of this show and uh, wanted to send a little something to show his appreciation for the kind of work that we do on a regular basis. So now I regret mentioning yesterday that I denounced them in case they didn't hear the denunciation, but they did hear my reminding them of the denunciation. So if that's the case, I was just kidding about the denunciation. So so be it. 800-848-9222. Also curious if you think you have another reason why women are drinking so much these days. Is it something beyond the marketing campaign? Is it something beyond the trendy cocktails like the Cosmopolitan? Or is it something else? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Pamela is in New Jersey. Pamela, you're a woman. You must be drunk right now then, right? No, I don't really care for alcohol Good for you and, and for a while there they said to drink it and it's kind of like oh like it's been five months since i had any brandy or anything maybe i should drink it now, now they're saying no don't take it for your health because you know they say a little bit of drinking here and there is good for you but um i don't know but when people drink beer it, it looks so appetizing but no i don't care for it uh, but anyway, uh, McDaniels, uh, McDaniels, rather, it treats the Republican Party like kindergarten. And w- what's next? Uh, rocks, paper, scissors? <laughs> You're so I mean, right. You're so right, Pam. Pam, I, I got to run, but you, you're exactly right. I mean, these pledge. I pledge allegiance to the GOP and the party in which it stands. Keep asking questions. The Other Side of Midnight. Local Spotlight. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I am superstar Frank Morano. We have spent a lot of time covering these whales that are dying and beaching themselves on beaches all over the East Coast. And uh, this week, the 60th whale death since 2022 continues to raise questions over offshore wind power's impact on whales and other sorts of marine life. Now, I want to be very clear. I think the jury is still very much out on whether the sonar mapping of these wind turbines is causing these whales to beach themselves somehow. I don't know what the answer is, but a lot of people that have brought this up and that have looked at this, they do believe that there's a strong case to be made that it does have something to do with the planning stages of offshore wind energy. And we see on Saturday, New Jersey lifeguards discovering this dead humpback whale washed ashore. The 
latest in a string of unexplained deaths of various whale species on the East Coast. So I don't know what the cause is, but I do think it's worth looking at. And I think it's fair game to explore whether or not wind energy has played a role. Well, Facebook is censoring information about the relationship between industrial wind energy development and the increase in whale deaths off the East Coast. Michael Schellenberger said this week both Facebook and Instagram, which are owned by Meta, censored a Facebook post from him linking whale deaths to wind energy off the coast of the United States. The censorship came on the exact same day that Public and Environmental Progress released a new documentary called Throne to the Wind which I haven't seen, but which purports to prove that there is, in fact, a relationship between offshore wind energy and the whale deaths. And in this documentary, there's supposedly powerful new scientific evidence that the wind industry is responsible for the increase in whale deaths. I don't know if that's true, but I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody as respected as Michael Schellenberger putting that out there on social media. Why would Facebook and Instagram be censoring this? If Facebook wants to be the modern day digital town square let it be because this is awfully reminiscent of when they were censoring information about the covid lab leak theory and censoring other information related to covid which turned out to if not be proven true at least be proven very likely censorship whether it's corporate or governmental in my view is very rarely the answer and i don't think it's the right answer in this case we need more discussion not more censorship beam me up to be continued you know i love that home cooking italian family feeling it takes me back to eating sunday dinner at my grandparents' home, the Bianchinos. And that's exactly what the Angelo family has in La Pastaria, delivering generations of unique recipes prepared just for you. Their family brought their recipe over from Naples, Italy. They know what they're doing. They've been in the restaurant business for over 60 years. Their roots run deep as La Pastaria is run by the same family that owned and ran the legendary old stone crab restaurant in Newark, New Jersey. Their rich, old-school Italian cuisine will have you coming back for more. And you'll always want to leave room for the dessert. They're in Red Bank and Summit, New Jersey, serving home-style Italian cuisine. Benvenuto in familia. Check out their menu. Go to lapastaria.org. That's lapastaria.org. We'll see you. And La Pastaria. In this fast-paced world, not everyone has 30 minutes to listen to an entire podcast. So we created the 77 WABC minicast. It's topical, it's informative, and entertaining. And it's only 10 minutes. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The 77 WABC minicast. The facts you need in only 10 New York minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. I've talked about this before. It's there's a really irritating phenomenon that I think affects everybody, but it affects me in spades. 
when I can't remember the name of a motion picture, it kills me. I have to go and figure it out. Uh, for instance, the, there's one the, certain films I'll never remember the name to. Uh, there's a uh, there's an, a, a Jay Leno Pat Narita movie that nobody ever remembers the name to. I think it's something like Collision Course, but I never remember the name to that that film. But you, it's it's such a pain when you just can't remember the name of a film or a song or a book. What's the book with the with the so and so that marries so and so? And you can't give that sort of a description. Well, who's the author? Oh, I don't remember. Well, you know. So anyway. This Friday, I am at a crossroads in terms of my date night with my wife. Do we go to this Eisenhower show or do we go to the movies and see Oppenheimer or Indiana Jones or something? So I remember someone that I had in studio told me that they had seen this Eisenhower show. And at first, I thought it was Richard Bay. I reached out to Richard Bay. Hey, Richard, was it you who told me that you saw this show about Eisenhower? He said, nope, wasn't me. And then I was sure I remembered who it was. I said, it's got to be Elliot Gordon. Elliot Gordon's been in studio a few times. We'll chat a few minutes during the break. I uh, I said, uh, Elliot, you know, um, let me know what you thought of this Eisenhower show. And by the way, why don't you come back again and we'll schedule something. He said, sure, I'd love to come back, but no, that wasn't me. I didn't see that Eisenhower show. I said, all right, I mean, I guess it'll still be nice to have you on the radio. But uh, I still don't know who it was that told me they saw that Eisenhower show. If anybody remembers, because they, if we talked about it on the air, let me know. But in any event, I am thrilled, whether he's seen that Eisenhower show or not, to welcome back Elliot Gordon, he is an entrepreneur, a former agent, Mayor Giuliani, a producer and a talent agent. And he has um, conceptualized this really innovative blending of storytelling and curating clips, uh, allowing a stroll down memory lane that has audiences of all ages laughing and smiling. And uh, whenever he's on the show with me, there's such an overwhelming positive response all over the country that I'm eager to have him back as uh, as often as possible. Elliot, it's great to see you in studio again. Thanks for coming Frank, in. it is great to be here. And anytime I'm on the Frank Morano show, for the next four days, people stop me on the street. We heard you, we heard you. I said, well, you want to hear me? You can call me at home. There's no, you sound better with Frank. <laughs> so I'm back here. I'm thrilled to be back here. It's always great. I, I'm uh, I'm thrilled to have you. For folks that have not heard our, our previous discussions, because we're picking up, thankfully, new new markets all over the all over the country all the time. Give us the Reader's Digest version of exactly what it is that you do regularly for these live shows. Sure. Frank, for a long time, maybe 20, 25 years, I have been a talent agent, which is great because you're representing artists and you're going out, you're getting them work, you're picking up commissions. And I was working a lot with the older guys because they were easier, more accessible. So I was getting jobs for guys like uh, Robert Klein and our buddy Pat Cooper and Catskills on Broadway and Jackie Mason and one after another. And my name got around and Alan King and they say, hey, this guy delivers. And I was picking up nice commissions, but I didn't realize more valuable than the commissions is I was picking up stories. We would go to lunch together, dinner together, and they would share stories with me about their background, how they came up, in many cases, the Catskill Mountains. But not only the Catskill Mountains, my mentor, my friend forever, was a man named Sid Bernstein, 
and he became one of the big music promoters mm. of the 1960s and 70s. And Sid and I developed a friendship and a relationship that lasted, well, over 30 years. And I lost him about five years ago at the age of 95. But Sid, speaking yesterday was August 15th, and 58 years ago, Sid made history with the first concert in a major league ballpark in history when he brought four kids named the Beatles into Shea Stadium and changed Never the music industry. <laughs> and uh, I said, Sid, I said, you know, how did that come about? Because uh, that's history. He said, El, well, in 1962, I lost all my money promoting shows in New Jersey. I went bust, a couple of bad shows. Needed money, got a job with an agency called GAC, General Artists Corporation. And he said, uh, I went to work with them. It was a little bit boring because a promoter is the action. You're gambling. You're hustling. But an agent, you're just making calls to get jobs for the clients. He said it wasn't that stimulating, even though it was a check. So he went to the new school because there was a guy, Max Lerner, who he loved as a columnist from the New York Post, and he was teaching a course there about foreign governments. So he said, I want to stimulate my mind. At night, I went to the new school. And the guy said, well, pick which country you want because foreign governments and you bring back information and I'll teach you. And he said, I, I took Great Britain because it was English. I could go to uh, the newsstand in Times Square, which was called Hoddlings, that got newspapers from all over the world. They're still there now as a store. And he said, I'd pick up papers from Great Britain to do my homework assignment. But being an agent, I had to turn to the entertainment page. It's who I am. Right. And he said, El, I caught one line. It said, music note, four lads from Liverpool causing a stir. It just caught my, caught my eye. He said, it just got me. And he said, a few days later, it was two lines. And then a week later, a paragraph. And then half a paragraph and a couple of pictures. And he said, I didn't realize it, but through the newspapers I was getting in Times Square, I was witnessing the birth of the Beatles. And that's how they were starting to grow. And he said, I just kept following it in the papers. And as a promoter, I'm seeing kids in pictures lining down the block. That's ticket buyers. That's what I need. That's how I make a living. He said, I figure ticket buyers in England, ticket by kids in New York. It's the same thing, the same language. He said, so I brought it to my boss, Buddy Howe, uh, who was the head of GAC. And I said, Buddy, there's something going on in Liverpool that we should stop paying attention to. They're getting a lot of coverage in the newspaper. And photographers follow crowds. If you got crowds, the press will be there. These guys got crowds. That's why they're getting coverage. So he said, Buddy says to me, well, we got an office in London, and we'll send an agent up to Liverpool, which is like a two-and-a-half-hour drive. So give it a couple of weeks. We'll send one of our guys to check these guys out, Sid. And about three weeks go by, and he said, Buddy walks into my office and hands me a memo that uh, one of our agents went to see him at the Cavern, and the memo says, good band, but not right for American audiences. Really? Yeah. And he says to Sid, uh, we're going to pass on your band. And Sid said, L, I know Buddy's wrong. I'm a promoter. There are lines there. There's something that's not right. He said, I know what I'm looking at. So he said, I'm figuring maybe I could break away. 
and bring them in myself. It's against agency rules for an agent to promote. So I got to do it under the radar. And he said, I don't even know how to get in touch with them. You can't Google Beatle manager in 1962. Uh, So he said, Al, I'm in a quandary. He said, Sid loved his um, ice cream and pizza and French fries. He was what I called a uh, a regular foodie gourmet, and he loved that stuff. So he said, I'm at a place called Stouffer's restaurant chain, and I'm at the counter having ice cream, trying to figure out this dilemma. How do I find this group's manager? And he said, an agent I walk, I knew walked in named Bud Seligwell. And he said, Sid, what's happening? And he said, Bud, he said, I'm hot on a British band. They call themselves the Beatles. I don't know how to get in touch with their manager. And he said, El, there's something called Besheret, which is a Hebrew word. It's meant to be. Bud says to Sid, Sid, I just got back from London. I've been working for a guy named Brian Epstein. He hired me. He's the manager of the Beatles. They got a record deal by EMI, which is the parent company of Capital. And he hired me to come to London, go to the disc jockeys, go to the radio people, try to get some some airplay. He said, but it's a very small thing. He said, they got a following in Liverpool. Brian Epstein is a one-man show. He handles everything, the press, the bookings, the managing. You're building this up in your head. It's a small local issue. He said, I just got back. And Sid tells Bud, but I feel it in my bones. There's something going on in those pictures that I like. Mm. Give me Brian's number. And he just hands him in the number, circle six, something or other. And he said, El, he said, I called the number. Brian lived at his home in London, at his mother's home, Queenie Epstein. He said his mother answers the phone, and uh, we have a nice conversation. She said, Sid, where are you calling from? He said, well, I'm calling from New York. She said, Sid, my favorite thing to read every week, my favorite thing is the Sunday book review of the New York Times. And we get it here in London, and they're always saying, we promise we'll save you a copy. And half the times they don't. So he said, Al, I made a deal with Brian's mother, which I kept for 30 years. Every Sunday I will airmail you the (laughs) book review from the Times. Give me your son. Put your son on the phone. And she's and he did it for 30 years. And she said, Mr. Bernstein, this is obviously costing you a lot of money. This phone call. Brian's upstairs. I'll get my son. He said, Brian comes to the phone and said, you are the first person to call me from New York, from America. He said, nobody returns my calls. The agencies won't call me back. We can't get anything released by capital in America. None of the promoters. He said, Mr. Bernstein, what's wrong with you people? My boys are playing their book to play the best music halls in England. We got bookings for Germany and France. What is your problem in America? And Sid tells me, I tell Brian, I've been following you guys through the newspapers that I've been picking up in Times Square. I know you're on target. I would like to make an offer to be the first one to bring your guys to America, to New York. And he said, Brian says, well, where would you present him? And Sid said, I didn't think of that. I I got so excited with everything, I forgot where to say. And he said, I just blurted out, uh, Carnegie Hall. And Brian said, that's it. He said, Carnegie Hall is class. It's famous all over the world. If my boys come to New York, and he never called them the Beatles. It was always my boys. My boys come to New York. I want them in Carnegie Hall. 
And Sid said, well, how much money are you getting? He said, well, we're getting the equivalent of dollars to pounds, uh, 2000 a night now here in, uh, England. And we got the same deal going to, uh, Germany and France, 2000 a show. And Sid said, Al, I just threw it out there. He said, I was shooting dice. He said, I'd like to take your boys for two shows in one night for 6500 which has become legend in entertainment wow. business. And Brian said, well, I can't turn that down. He said, wait till I tell the guys at Issau's. Sid didn't know what Issau's was. It was a hot theater restaurant that they all hung out at. He said, okay. He said, we'll make a deal. And uh, Sid said, I'd like to bring him in in 90 days. And Brian said, no, let's make it for a year from now, 64. And I won't let them come to New York unless we got a hit record, meaning top 40. Paul McCartney always tells the story that he says we told Brian a number one, but you can't make that deal. Brian told Sid a top 40. We need a record out because I won't bring them to New York if they don't got in right. the airplane. So Sid says, "L, I make the deal. By the way, there was never a contract. This was all done over the phone. It was all verbal, like they were farmers out in Wisconsin or something. And he said, I make a deal. Uh, and uh, he said, now I go down to uh, Carnegie Hall. And I want to hold the date because the deal I made was February 12th, 1964, because then we celebrated Lincoln's birthday on Lincoln's birthday. There was no Monday holiday. Go figure, yeah. So he said, I needed a day when the kids were off. So it's February 12th. So he said, I go to Carnegie Hall and uh, I said, I want to take that date for uh, for the Beatles. And they never heard of the Beatles. They said, well, Mr. Bernstein, uh, you know, we have a no rock and roll policy at Carnegie Hall. He said, what are the Beatles? And he said, they're a British quartet. (laughs) (laughs) He hits that. He throws down a deposit. And uh, he said, Al, he said, "Um, you know, as time are going by, they're they're getting their records released in New York. And uh, before you know it, by the time I put tickets on sale, which was uh, January 1st of 64, he said everybody knew him. He said it became historic and it became Really a tremendous success, and his relationship with Brian Epstein cemented. So now Sid becomes a big guy. He has a friend of his named Walter Hyman said, Sid, leave the agency. I'll come up with the money. We've got another guy who is your buddy from 47th Street, Abe Margulies. He'll come up with money. Full-time promote. You don't have to work for the agency anymore. Everybody in the country has been writing about Sid Bernstein found the Beatles. He brought them to America. He presented them a Carnegie. You're a big man. So Sid said, I love promotion. I'll do it. Leaves the agency on good terms. And he said, we get a nice office. I think it was 505 Park Avenue. Uh, he said, El, I go to my uh, desk. The phone rings. And I get a call from a guy whose name you just can't forget, Andrew Lug Oldham. How do you forget a name like that? It. And uh, he said, Mr. Bernstein, he said, I got a group out here. I got a band. He said, we're working the bars in London, working some of the joints out there. We got a record out. And my guys keep telling me we want to work in New York. The Beatles went with Sid Bernstein. Call Sid Bernstein. Let him bring us to New York because we want to work out there. So Sid says, well, uh, do your, does your band have a name? He said, uh, yeah, they call themselves the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and now Sid's bringing in the Rolling Stones. And he brings them into Carnegie Hall, like with the Beatles. And all those British bands now have their managers call Sid Bernstein because of the Beatles. 
So he said, I'm bringing in the Dave Clark Five, the Herman's Hermits, the Moody Blues, the Kinks, the Animals. They called me. He said, El, but the problem I ran into was the Beatles show sold out, Rolling Stones sold out. And I said, gee, if I had more than two Beatles shows or two shows by the Stones, I would have cleaned up. I should have bought more shows. So for these bands, I'm buying five and six shows, but they couldn't do the business. They weren't the Stones and the Beatles. And Sid went broke. And I said, Sid, I see Sid Ellie said, I lost all my money. My backers pulled out because after the Stones and the Beatles, all were losers. And he said, I became very famous, but I'm busted. Fame without the fortune. Right. Well, I've heard that's the worst thing. Right. So he said, uh, my wife is on my case. I can't handle this business. You're up, you're down, you're in, you're out. He said, I can't do it. We've got a child. We've got another one on the way. Sid wound up having six beautiful kids. Uh, get a job. Uh, he said, I'm getting eviction notices from the apartment, from the landlord. So I owe money to the grocer, to the butcher, to the dry cleaner. He said, I am tapped out. And I didn't want to quit. I said, L, I know my wife kept pushing me, but I said, no, uh, I'm going to figure out how to get back on my feet. I said, well, Sid, what'd you do? He said, well, I thought back to Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall holds 2,800 people. We sold out two shows as 5,600 tickets. But I asked Nat Patasnik, who ran the box office at Carnegie Hall, Nat, how many tickets could I have sold? for the Beatles shows if I had them. And he said, El, Nat told me, by the way the phones were ringing, uh, about 200,000. Wow. And he said, El, at that point, it just rang to me that I've got to bring the Beatles back and I've got to bring them in the biggest room New York City has, uh, which at that time was Yankee. He said, but Yankee was in a bad era. area. Uh, Shea was just built. Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium. He said the idea of a new stadium, the paint glistens, the chrome on the escalators shine. He said a new venue. Wouldn't that be great? And he said, El, he said, I was going to do it in a stadium. So um, I'd be the first one to ever do that. Uh, He said, I called Shea and I spoke to a guy, Jim Thompson, who ran the stadium. Uh, I said, said, what price? What can I get Shea for? He said he didn't even have a price because it's never been done before. So they came up with a price of $25,000. So he said put a hold. The best date for Shea, the Mets would be away, was August 15th. He said put a hold. And Sid's famous. They think he's got all kinds of money. (laughs) Sid Bernstein called. We'll put a hold on the stadium. He couldn't pay the rent in the apartment. Now he's renting a stadium. So he said, oh, then at that point, I've I've got the big call to Brian Epstein. He said, I call Brian and I say, Brian, I want to bring you guys back to New York in the summer of 65. Brian said, perfect. We're planning a tour of North America. We could fly from Heathrow Airport into Kennedy. We could open up in New York and sit. As far as I'm concerned, you own the Beatles for New York. You're our man there. Uh, so he said, you want to bring him back to Carnegie? Uh, Sid said, no. He said, uh, well, where do you want to bring him? And he said, uh, Shea Stadium. And Brian turned him down right away. He said, Sid, we're playing places that hold about 5,000 people. And my policy with the Beatles is no empty seats. We sell out wherever we go. That's our deal. I'm not interested in going into a stadium, selling 20,000 tickets, which is a lot. And at that point, having half the stadium empty. He said, you'll kill their career. I'm going to turn you down. 
And Sid said, Al, I just got tough with Brian. He said, I'm not that kind of guy, but I just, I said, he said, Brian, I will guarantee you in writing $10 a ticket for every empty seat in the stadium. Wow. Sid didn't have money for chewing gum. But he, that, he said, Al, I went with it. And he said, Brian got quiet. And he said, you know, you sound very cocky, very confident. He said, you must know something about what's happening in the New York market. I'm in London. You live in New York. And he said, Sid, I'm starting to believe that with this band, uh, maybe anything's possible. He said, I never thought I'd do it. But I'm going to OK Shea Stadium. He said, you got me. Uh, and Sid said, what's the price? He said, well, I can't give them to you what I gave them to you for last year, which was two shows for 6500 We've got movies out there, A Hard Day's right. Night. We've got help going into the movie theater. We've got hit records. He said, Sid, I need a $100,000 guarantee against the back-end deal of a percentage. Uh, and Sid said, Brian, you got it. Sid doesn't have any money. He said, but you got it. And he said, I need a 50% deposit to lock it in. He said, I'll put a hold on the date. But if John Lennon comes to me or Ringo comes to me, he said, where's the deposit? We're friends but I got to show them this 50000 there, Sid. They're hot. I can't tie their dates up. And Sid said, okay, Sid, can I advertise it? And Brian said, not until there's a deposit. He said, can I tell my friends? And he said, Brian started laughing. Sid, I can't control what you say to your pals. He said, you could tell your friends. That was the only opening Sid had. So now he's got a hold on the Beatles for 100000 He's got a hold on Shea for twenty five grand. He doesn't have any money. And he said, Al, I didn't know what to do. He said, I felt I'm gambling big time. So I went to the local post office box in the uh, uh, in the village area, the Chelsea area, where he's living at the time. And he said, I got a post office box 21, P.O. Box 21, because I figure I'm playing blackjack. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and he said, then I'm pushing my son, who was a year old at the time, in Washington Square Park. And all the teenagers knew me from the Beatles and the Stones and Dave Clark Five. They come running over. Mr. Bernstein, who's next? And he said, I tell him I'm bringing the Beatles into Shea Stadium in August. They're ready to jump out of their sneakers. How do we get tickets? How do we get tickets? He said, send whatever it was, $5, $7, P.O. Box 21 to Sid Bernstein, the village. He said, "L, I did it for about a month. And then I went to the post office box, and I opened up the box. I figure if I sold 50 tickets at $5, I get $250. I give a few dollars to the landlord. I'll buy a pizza with sure. my wife. I'll calm her down. And he said, I open up the box, and there's nothing there. And he said, that can't be. This is 1965. The Beatles own the record world. He said, how can I? Impossible. He said, I go to the teller, and I said, there's something wrong. I should have mail. And he said, well, you know, what's your name? And he said, it's Bernstein. He said, you're Bernstein? He said, yelling to the guys in the back, hey, Charlie, stop bringing it out. Three duffel bags filled with money, filled with envelopes. Sid said, L, I was going to do an Irish jig in the middle of the post office. I was so excited. I said, wait, I got to get my car. He said, I bring him home. He said, my wife is yelling at me. Sid, what are you bringing into my living room? He said, money. He said, start bringing it in. He said, oh, we got nurses from the hospital across the street to help sort this out. There was over $300,000 in those three buffalo bags. We sold out the stadium just with telling kids at the park, 
Nowhere. Wow. There's no flyers, no that cell phones. extraordinary. Yes. I had no idea that aspect of the and story. He said by the time it was done, we could have sold out five shows at Shea Stadium. How integral, uh, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Elliot Gordon, entrepreneur, former uh, mayoral aide and uh, a producer and talent agent. His mentor was Sid Bernstein, the man that brought the Beatles to America and uh, conceptualized that uh, incredible concert at Shea Stadium, which had its anniversary this week. And um, how how integral was the uh, the promotional work of the DJ Cousin Brucey, who I'm proud to call a friend and a colleague these days, in uh, building up that Shea Stadium concert? I know he was there, and he takes a great deal of pride right. in his role. Right. How important was that? Well, the stadium, uh, as far as selling out, it just sold out by itself. So even Sid as a promoter, there was nothing to promote. They were so hot, you it's could tell incredible. kids and sell 60,000 tickets. Uh, but what Bruce did, uh, Sid, <laughs> Sid told me, he said, oh, I got a call from uh, Rick Sklar, who was the program director uh, at the, the station at the time. And he said, hey, you're housing them in the Warwick Hotel, which is right across the street from where the station used to be. WABC used to be across the street. He said, can you get Bruce into the hotel room with the Beatles to do a live interview? And Sid said, well, I can call Brian. I'm not the boss. It's up to Brian Epstein. He said, I called Brian. Brian says, have those guys, the technicians, in the lobby. He said, not not across the street, because if I get a clearance from the Beatles, I want them to hit the elevator and be up here in one minute, because the Beatles could change their mind and leave and <laughs> right, go to a sure. bar. He said, I don't work for them. I, I work for them. They don't work for me. So Sid said, okay. So they had him down there. Brian gave him the signal. Bruce went up, and uh, I know they put him on the network. Bruce told me, said, L, they bumped all programming because I was in the hotel room live with the Beatles the night before Shea Stadium. That is absolutely incredible. Elliot Gordon is here. If you have uh, questions or uh, anything you want to go over with Elliot, we'll take some of your calls at 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. We've been having a lot of uh, a lot of Tony Bennett conversation lately on the program since his passing. We'll talk with uh, Elliot about that. Also, uh, a couple of other interesting aspects of uh, memory lane that are worth strolling down. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano here with Elliot Gordon. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
is the Beatles. Uh, we are uh, talking with Elliot Gordon uh, a little bit about uh, a little bit about everything, including the incredible Beatles concert at uh, Shea Stadium on August fifteenth of nineteen sixty six. Sixty five. Sixty five. Excuse me. And um, what you mentioned to me during the break, Elliot, is that um, two of the people that were at that Shea Stadium concert actually married Beatles. Amazing. That was that's a life that kind of like had different layers to it. It was a magical life. Two of the girls who bought tickets that night to see their favorite band uh, married two Beatles. One was Linda Eastman, who married Paul McCartney, and the other, Barbara Bach, who is still married to Ringo. Uh, Meryl Streep was there, and she always says it's one of the great moments of her childhood. Whoopi Goldberg was there. Sid had a 15-year-old young kid who was working as an apprentice for the New York mayor's office in the city-owned Shea Stadium, and he was schlepping chairs and carrying things around. He said, Ellie, he was a real sharp kid. He was great. I said, whatever happened to him? Uh, he said he's Steven Spielberg's partner. It was <laughs> Jeff Katzenberg who was out there. And, uh, it just, it just doesn't stop. And, uh, Sid said, L, but you know, when, when you put your mind to it, um, uh, quitting is the easy way out. But if you hang in there and come up with an idea, and Sid had signed a band called The Rascals mm. at that time. And he put their name up on the scoreboard, flashing, the rascals are coming. Nobody knew the rascals, he said, but he just kept flashing. And it was picked up by the TV cameras uh, because there was over 300 press personnel there that night because it was the Beatles' opening night, and it was the first stadium concert. And he said, oh, the next day I got calls from record companies all over the country, all over the world, say, we want to sign the Rascals. He said, you never heard their music. He said, Mr. Bernstein, you write about the Beatles. He said he made a deal with Atlantic Records, and the Rascals are in the Rock and Roll that, Hall of Fame. That is uh, wild. want to pick your brain on a few different things. Uh, I mentioned at the start of the hour that uh, that you had been an aide to Mayor Giuliani. One of the things I like about you is that, uh, you know, our our talks and your presentations are, are largely non-political. You could be a communist or a member of the John Birch Society and still enjoy it just as much. But having worked in the Giuliani administration, I have to ask your thoughts on the uh, Giuliani indictment this week out of Georgia. A lot of people are saying that this is just the mayor being railroaded. A lot of other folks are saying this is a culmination of what we've seen with the the mayor of his sort of fall from grace as somebody that worked with him as somebody that knew him do you have any kind of reaction to this indictment out of georgia yes as far as fall from grace i'm proud of uh more proud of him now than i've ever been i mean this is a guy who has stood firm he hasn't changed his position at all uh he is a fighter uh he'll get through this he'll be successful and uh, I don't think he's uh, changed at all. He's the same man I knew in City Hall, that when he believes in something, uh, he stands firm. And when he's your friend and he's got your back, you could count on him. You could sleep on that. And he's going to get through this thing very, very successfully. Well, let's hope so. I've gotten to know him uh, a little bit over the years, not nearly as well as you. And uh, I uh, find him just a, still a very, very impressive guy. One of the things that I think is so interesting about your presentations, these live shows you do where you show clips from yesteryear of a lot of great talents, is some of the things that I've noticed on the radio, and we have listeners of all ages, is that people that weren't necessarily around in the eras that you're highlighting and may not necessarily be familiar with the performers that you're showing on video they are developing a new generation of fans with people that weren't even alive when they were doing their thing. Absolutely, Frank. Frank, there's a, a very high-end uh, 
uh, a community called uh, the Watermark, and they have a theater, and they bring me back twice a month. And I was there uh, two days ago, and the folks just love it. And one of the people in there happened to work uh, for the uh, um, the theater, and she was 35 years old, and she stayed the whole hour. And she said, I love these guys. I said, uh, well, you know, you never heard of the Mills Brothers before this clip I showed you. And uh, uh, you didn't know really who Dean Martin was, Frank Sinatra, maybe. She said, "Uh, but I know I liked what I saw. I was singing along with it. And what I'm finding, uh, one of the things they absolutely love is the style. These guys are dressed up. You know, I was at a... Uh, 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 a show not long ago, the guy came out in his T-shirt. I said, put on a tie. I said, well, there's a crowd of people here. And uh, they, they like the style. They like um, the Broadway clips I showed them. How could you not like Hello, Dolly? I mean, it just goes from generation to generation. A, a big part of Hello, Dolly was uh, obviously uh, Carol Channing, who is just so incredible as a talent, as a wit, as a performer. And uh, for people that haven't heard Carol Channing in a bit, here's, uh, here's what she may sound like. Hello, Julie. Am I late? That's Carol Channing. No, Carol, you're never late. You're always timing. Oh, well, I fished for that. We were just talking about the old times, you know, reminiscing. Yes, yes. We've got plenty to reminisce about. Well, we do. I remember when you came to see me in a little review called Lendonier, and I was one of 20 unknowns, and you dragged everybody down there to see me. And then you decided that's our Lorelei Lee. And the minute I got Jennifer Blondes... I said, my God, that girl, that wonderful big girl. Well, you know it was the story of a little girl from Little Rock. It was five feet, two eyes of blue. It said so in the original book of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And here I was over six feet tall with muddy brown eyes. And you said, we don't want the cutest, prettiest, littlest girl in town. We want Carol's satire on her. We want Carol's comedy comment on her. Right, Carol. (laughs) Right now, imagine the orchestra's tuning up. You know how they tune up? Yeah. And the orchestra's just finished, and I want you to walk down. Yes, Julie. Center stage. Center stage. Like a star. They belong to you, baby. Of 
And the great Carol Channing, uh, terrific. I mean, you listen to that, you're just transported to a, a different era. And uh, you actually represented Carol Channing. That is time, correct. Right? One time, and I'm very proud of that, about 15 years ago, uh, myself and a partner, we were booking entertainers uh, into what they call autograph shows, where you sign your autograph and they pay you for it. You take a picture with them and they pay you for it. And I got Carol's number, I think possibly from the Friars Club, and I spoke with uh, with her, and I said, Carol, I said, there's a show uh, right by where you live in Los Angeles. May I and my partner represent you and book you into that show? Take pictures. You get paid. Sign autographs. You get paid. And she said, Elsie, she said, I've done everything in show business. I've done TV. I've done Broadway. I've done movies, personal appearances. I've never done an autograph show, and I want to do one, only one, to run the gamut. And she says, yes, you may. And it really was an honor because I really wasn't off Carol. I mean, that song you just played for us from uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blonde. Mm. She was the original star in the late 50s of that show, later a movie by Marilyn Monroe. And she is the original Dolly in Hello, Dolly. Uh, in the theatrical version. In the theatrical. And, of course, Barbara Streisand did the film. Uh, so I, I book her in there. And in four hours... Uh, she uh, generates $10,000 Wow! pictures, autographs. And uh, she tells me, she says, Elle, I'll send you guys your commission. She said, but I'm not going to keep the rest of the money. I said, well, give it to me. She said, <laughs> <laughs> she, she says, no, no. She said, I'm going to donate it to a local charity. And I said, Carol, I said, I want to fly to Los Angeles just to hug you. I said, you are what show business should be. You are Jerry Lewis. You are Frank Sinatra. You understand that once in a while you got to give a little bit back. And I said, I love that about you, what you represent. It was my privilege and honor to for you to allow me and my partner to represent you once. And uh, special lady, special person. Well, if you could generate uh, $10,000 in four hours with an autograph show, no. why would it only be a, a, a one-time representation? Why wouldn't you have represented her repeatedly? Well, she was elderly at the time. She wasn't doing a lot. And uh, as far as those things, which is where her availability was, I think she was signed for uh, Broadway and signed for films. <laughs> Um, that's the only one she wanted to do. I don't know if she actually enjoyed it, but uh, she enjoyed raising money for the less fortunate. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Joe, you're on with uh, Elliot Gordon. Yeah, hi, Elliot. Uh, my question is, if, if you look at the 50s, uh, there's nothing you can really cite, I think, that's anything like the Stones or the Beatles, which were the early 60s. But uh, so musically, it seems like a complete transition as opposed to the movies, where it does seem like there's uh, a lot of similarity from the movies, 50s to 60s. So uh, why is that the case? Or it seems to be the case. I mean, you know, looking back. Well, the Beatles always said that they got uh, their inspiration from American rock and roll, uh, Elvis and uh, Little Richard. And, uh, I, gee, I don't know. I guess maybe they were just a little bit different. Uh, and, uh, Sid just happened to catch them at the right time. So, uh, I don't know the answer to that. 
Thanks, Joe. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Let me ask you about another uh, actor that you uh, don't hear a great deal about, someone that was uh, probably best known for uh, comedic roles, but uh, also, um, you know, no stranger to dramatic roles either, and that's Red Buttons. If people haven't heard the name Red Buttons in a while, here's Red Buttons at uh, Sid Caesar's 80th birthday. The breaking news that Sid Caesar... He's getting a dinner because the fryers are too cheap to get him what he really needs. A new cane. He's been falling on his ass lately. I said, friend, count me in. I'll be there. You know me. You know me. You call me. I am there. It doesn't matter where. I am there. I was there in way. Transylvania. <laughs> at a midnight minion of Jewish Orthodox vampires. Who <laughs> will not suck a neck unless they salt it first. <laughs> at uh, Sid Caesar's 80th uh, 80th birthday. Uh, someone like Red Buttons, what was it that you think made him such a uh, such a charismatic and such a special entertainer? Well, he worked so long and so hard and a uh, wonderful guy. And uh, I called Red one time. We'd become friendly. And I said, Red, I said, you know, I'm representing Catskills on Broadway, Freddie Roman, Malzi Lawrence. And I spoke to those guys. They really don't want to write new material. I said, you know, you've done this show so many times. You, you need new, mer- new material, new merchandise. I said, Red, but if I could bring you in, you got all those new jokes, those great jokes. Uh, and he said, Al, I'm going to teach you something. He said, I really don't want to do that stuff anymore. He was getting up in years. He said, but 
Uh, comedians never tell you no. They give you a price that's so high, so you'll <laughs> spread it around what they turned down. He said, so I'm going to tell you, i got to get $25,000, which you're not going to give me. But I want people to know that Red, Red Buttons is asking for twenty five grand. <laughs> so uh, a wonderful guy and a guy who just kept at it for so long, a naturally funny guy. And she and an Oscar winner. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah. Uh, I know he was in The Longest Day, but he won the Oscar for They Shoot Horses, don't they? No, or? I think it was Bridge Over the River Kwai. Oh, 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 that's right. That's right. Um, no, you're you're correct. But a terrific actor, as I said, a great dramatic actor and a comedic actor as well. 800-848-9222. Robert's in Suffolk. Robert, you're on with uh, Elliot Gordon. Hi, Elliot. You are so fortunate to have been such an integral part of music history. And I'm very happy to hear you. How did those girls scream so loud at the concert? Did they actually measure how loud they were? Well, you know, I'm going to comment on that because in a way, yes. And thank you very much It's uh, for your compliment. I appreciate it. And again, it's not me. It was Sid Bernstein. He just shared all those beautiful stories with me. Uh, but there was a lady... Uh, who um, was one of the dancers. In other words, the Beatles only did 28 minutes. Now, Paul McCartney, I think, does three hours by himself. But the Beatles did 28 minutes. That's the way Brian Epstein ran it. And the idea was that, you know, he wants to get people, uh, uh, you know, the Beatles come in for a short shot and that's it. And what happened was they had to fill out the show. So they had a group called uh, King Curtis and the Cannibals and Sid had a uh, karate demonstration on stage because he really wanted to show all those young kids in the crowd that don't think you can get past the security guards and run to the stage. You're going to wind up with a karate chop. So they stayed in their seats. So he had a karate uh, group demonstrate at Chase Stadium and also a group called the Disco, uh, I think the Disco Dancers. And one of the girls told me that the explosion of uh, girls screaming, because I would say it would be about 90% girls at that Shea Stadium concert, she felt it was a, a, a youth quake, and to witness it was really wild, the enthusiasm. And she said, El, being on stage that night, and she was only 18 years old, she always felt what she was witnessing was uh, 60,000 12-year-old girls cheering for themselves and what they were going to be doing in their lives. And the Beatles was kind of a common denominator that brought them together that night. And she said years later when she had cancer and she beat it, thank God, she thought back to the optimism of those screaming girls, August 15th, 1965, and it helped her beat her wow. problems later in life. Elliot Gordon is here. We'll talk Tony Bennett in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The loveliness of Paris Seems somehow sadly gay The glory that was Rome Is of another day I've been terribly alone 
and forgotten. This is the great Tony Bennett uh, singing on, I believe, the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, my left, I left my heart in San Francisco. Tony Bennett, obviously, we lost recently. One of the most incredible entertainers of all time. Somebody that had uh, peaks and valleys in his career, but just kept at it and uh, kept um, re re. Uh, Appealing once, once more to different eras of entertainment and changing with the, the times in which he lived. Uh, Elliot Gordon, entrepreneur, uh, and a producer and a talent agent, agent extraordinaire. You, you knew Tony Bennett a bit, right? Well, I met him, yes, in a way. Uh, it was about 15 years ago and a friend of mine named Sid Zion, great newspaper reporter, uh, had a party and I go there and Tony's there, uh, and very approachable. He's there with a nice lady. And I walk over to him and I said, Tony, I said, you know, my mentor, Sid Bernstein, I think he may have done some work with you. And he looks at me and he smiles. He said, El, Sid presented me in Carnegie Hall the very first time I went there in 1962. He said, I love that man. So when I left the party, I called Sid. I said, Sid, I ran into Tony Bennett. And he said, you guys got quite a history together. And he said, El, in 1962, when I was working at GAC, my first day at the job, I was assigned to Tony Bennett. And I go to my desk, and there's a note Tony called. And he said, I call him, and he said, Sid, I'm leaving GAC. You guys are terrible. You're an awful agency. You got me working in bars six nights a week. Uh, he said, you're not very good, and I'm leaving. And Sid said, well, I didn't want to uh, uh, I didn't want to um, uh, lose a client the first day at work, uh, so I didn't know what to do. He said, I thought I'd lose my job. I said, Tony, I got a great idea. Hold on till the weekend. I'll come up to your home in Englewood Cliffs in New Jersey. We'll have lunch, and I'll lay this out on your great idea. Don't make a move. I said, Sid, you have an idea? He said, no, but I didn't want to lose the account. <laughs> he said, so I go up there, and by that, by Sunday, he said, I came up with an idea. I told him, Tony, uh, Judy Garland, when her career was in a rut, she went into Carnegie Hall. She did a great job, and she got out of the rut. He said, I don't have the money to rent Carnegie Hall, and I'm not allowed to promote shows because I'm an agent for the agency. I want you to come up with the money to put yourself in a Carnegie Hall. I'll do everything a promoter does. Hit a home run. That could get things going. And that's what they did. Well, that's what happened. Amazing. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? 646-675-1884. And I'll be going into Stand Up New York in the fall uh, with uh, History of the Comedians of the Catskills and uh, Safra Community Center on November 6. Thank you. We're going to have to end it there. Uh, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am superstar Frank Moreno. The story you are about to hear is true. It is also a glaring example of discrimination 
and anti-Catholic bigotry. It also happens to be something that we were warned about eight years ago by Justice Alito. Now, we all remember, well, many of us remember, who follow different Supreme Court decisions, the Supreme Court 2015 ruling in Obergfell versus Hodges, which held that states could not deny marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Now, I happen to be for gay marriage, but I had a major, some major problems with this decision that was written by Justice Kennedy and the supposed sections of the Constitution that it was based on. And at the time, in a short but very tart dissent, Justice Alito raised a red flag that Justice Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, basically just dismissed. And whatever this decision was, Justice Alito warned in Obergfell that this was not a victory for a live and let live America. This is what he wrote. It will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of its opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment for African-Americans and women. The implications of this analogy will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. Let us now return to the near present, eight years later. The Massachusetts Department of Children and Families has made a decision to deny Michael and Kitty Burke a foster care application. And the Burks are a loving couple who sought to adopt through the state's foster care program. Mr. Burke deployed to Iraq as a Marine, while his wife, Mrs. Burke, is a former paraprofessional for kids with special needs. And they seemed, the stars just seemed like they were aligned for a fairy tale ending for some lucky child to join a loving family. And the Burks were willing to accept children of any race, any culture or ethnicity, as well as some special needs. And I am—I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine it can be very difficult to get a special needs child adopted because I think it takes a very special type of person to want to shoulder that additional burden and in some cases additional expense and time of parenting a special needs child. They would even take siblings. The state of Massachusetts, in its assessment of the Burks, acknowledged the family's strengths. In the licensed study describing the family, the Massachusetts DCF noted that Kitty and Mike are devoutly Roman Catholic and not only attend church with regular frequency, they both also work for local churches as musicians. Now, you would think, that that would actually be a resume enhancement. You would think that that might help them get a child to raise. Well, today, that's not an endorsement at all. It's not a resume enhancement. It's an indictment. The Burks, and and I can't even believe this is reality that I'm living in. The Burks were found unfit to be trusted with a child. 
The author of their license study took care to note that the Burks are lovely people. That's a quote. But with regard to LGBT issues, she also said their faith is not supportive and neither are they. That's a quote, too. Ultimately, the license review team concluded the Burks would not be affirming to a child who identified as this is all these are all quotes. This is all in the license review. They would not be affirming to a child who identified as LGBTQIA. And the Burks were rejected. Can you believe this? The Burks have filed a lawsuit in federal court claiming that their First Amendment rights to free exercise of religion have been violated. And uh, this is just insane. This is absolutely insane. I want to be very clear. They did not say or do anything that was going to indicate a any discriminatory values towards gay people or any of the other letters that I just mentioned. Not one thing. You know, uh, they weren't sitting around saying, hey, you know, those gays there, they're just the worst. Or they weren't sitting around saying, hey, I hope the child that we adopt is not a bisexual, because if he is, he's out on the street. The sole determining factor in this couple not getting a child from the Massachusetts DCF was that they go to church and that they're active in a Catholic church. There's no evidence in either of their lives of any history of discrimination or of bigotry, and yet they were denied the opportunity to raise a child because even though their license review says they're lovely people, their religion is not tolerant of the LGBTQIA agenda. And they were denied a child. This is going to court on First Amendment grounds. I hope they win because if you can discriminate against a couple and keep them from getting a child just because they're Catholic, then this is a brave new world, the likes of which I don't even think Alduix Huxley conceived of. Because this new orthodoxy on sex and marriage is dangerous, quite frankly. And um, when the government takes over a space like this, this is dangerous. Now, I think the Burks do have a very strong case in federal court, unless they get a judge whose copy of the Constitution doesn't include the First Amendment. So there's a lesson here for the so-called culture wars. Following the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the pro-life effort to ban abortion has not gone too well, um, and no one's even trying to turn back the clock on same-sex marriage. The question now is whether contentious issues will be resolved through the democratic process so that the losers will still be able to live their own lives and run their own families according to their beliefs. Unfortunately, the push to cancel certain views, especially religious-based ones, suggests a new level of intolerance 
that is accepted under the law. I mean, this is just bizarre. This is crazy. So I hope they win this lawsuit, uh, but I think this is a stinging indictment that what um, Justice Alito said in that court decision is absolutely true. William McGurn had an interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on this yesterday, and uh, I think he's he's right on the money. He said that um, how different the landscape today is from what Justice Kennedy so glibly promised in Obergfell In what was almost an afterthought, he did allow that many who opposed same-sex marriage did so based on decent and honorable premises, and their First Amendment rights still still stand. And Alito says in his dissent, I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, They will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. Whatever you think about Alito, his dissent proved prophetic. And the Burks are being treated as bigots by the government. So we heard a lot when this Oberfell decision came out. What could it possibly matter to you if the Supreme Court allows people of the same sex to get married? Well, it doesn't. But when you're prohibiting people who adhere to a religion that doesn't think that that's the way to go from adopting a child, it's just sick, twisted and bizarre. I'm curious what you think about this. I happen to think they have a very strong case. uh, But if you want to comment on this case, the case of the Burks being denied a child on legal grounds, moral grounds, Etc. Um, feel free to give me a call. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Coming up uh, a little later, uh, we'll, a lot of, a lot of other interesting things that we'll get to. Big shout out to our listeners listening on Talk 1400 in South Jersey. Uh, they're, they're all over Atlantic City, which, uh, if there's time, I'll talk about. They're in Cape May. I feel like because we, we cut our vacation short recently by going to Cape May when our cat died, I feel like we're owed two or three more days in Cape May. So I would, uh, I definitely would like to get back maybe before next summer. I don't know when I'll, I'll get to. Maybe we could do a, a long weekend there sometime. We'll see. 800-848-9222. But if you're listening to us on Talk 1400, tip of the hat to you. Hope you, hope you're having a great time. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, Frank, I'd love to know what the preferred religion of the LBGTQ is. Well, it's none. I think that's clear. It's no. I know religion. it's none. It's terrible. It's, it's terrible. And the state of Massachusetts is absolutely a dump. I hope the Burks take them for as much money possible and just move anywhere else. They are the biggest bunch of hypocrites. In the athlete. They were the last in professional athletes to cross the color barrier. And now all of a sudden they're trying to make up for their past sins and just going completely full circle by denying people their the right to adopt just because of their view of a religion. Uh, the government in Massachusetts is absolutely terrible. Yeah, well, well, this goes so much, so much beyond this particular case, and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this, because if they're able to get away with this, and if the federal courts 
don't tell this this agency, this state agency in Massachusetts that you can't discriminate against people on the basis of religion, then other states are going to do the same thing. And you are going to see a situation where all Catholic couples or maybe all Orthodox Jewish couples or maybe all uh, Muslim uh, is uh, fundamentalist couples right. are going to be in the same position where because they adhere to a religion which doesn't embrace every possible lifestyle, they're not going to be able to uh, adopt children. And the real losers in this situation are the yeah, children the that, that are not going to be able to join a loving home. So, Frank, could you imagine if you were in Utah? Right, which is a hard Mormon state, um, and they told you we're not going to allow you to adopt under the same, you know, under the same guidelines that the Burks are going through now, because you're gay, or you can't do it because you practice a different religion. People will be going bonkers if as they said, should, as no. they should go bonkers. Yeah, exactly. But for some Absolutely reason, correct. for some reason, and and again, this is why I, I wanted to mention that Alito decision. You know, it's but I think it does. Thank you, Jr. I think it does go beyond Massachusetts. For some reason, we have sanctified discrimination against one group of people, people that actually take their faith seriously, that are active in their church. And I think that's just abominable, even if you don't believe in God. Even if you are hostile to organized religion, are we really saying that because a couple which has given no indication that there'd be any bigotry in their future child's life, we're really saying that because they go to church, they shouldn't be able to have a child? I mean, that's sick. It is sick and bizarre. 800-848-9222. If Bob were around uh, today, he would say, hey, the world is sick and getting sicker. Ain't that the truth, Bob? 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hi. That was quick. You know, it's interesting. I I can put you back on hold, Larry. I know I kept you holding a while yesterday. I was eager to get to you. No, you didn't. It's all right. But if you do, you just might hear me snore again, which uh, (laughs) you haven't heard for a while, you know. Um, anyway, I'll, I'm going to give you a bombshell because I was just thinking about this today. I was like really straining my mind. Like, where did this Trump hatred come from? I already concluded that since 2016, since the Obergefell decision, that's the time when all this hatred started manifesting all over this country and this country started going down, including Trump hatred. And it's no coincidence that it was Trump hatred. Why? Because Donald Trump is a gender-affirming person, okay? He's not like, uh, he, he goes in the, in, the dire- in the opposite direction that they want to go in. Because he was so much of a male chauvinist, a womanizer, a skirt chaser, he's gender-affirming. He's, he's affirming the fact that he is a man, and that's it. And there's no doubt about it. He's heterosexual, which is even worse. And um, that's why they hate him so much, because ever since 2016, the Obergefell decision all this hatred has been coming all out of, has been gushing out of society, and Trump is the central target of it because of that fact that he's gender affirming. Well, thank you, Larry. I do think the fact that uh, Donald Trump is unapologetic in everything that he does, it does make him more of a, give him more of a bullseye in his back to critics 
across the spectrum, not just the political spectrum, but the cultural spectrum as well. So I think I think the gender aspect of it is something. But the fact that he's politically incorrect, the fact that he uh, doesn't use all the right uh, the the right terms, all the PC terms for every ethnic group. I think that's a part of it. But I I think this is much more. I think this is much deeper than that. I, I think it does in part go to that Oberfell decision, which had nothing to do with Trump. It was released before Trump was uh, was even the nominee of the party. It was released at a time when people didn't take him seriously as a presidential candidacy. I think it has more to do with the fact that, and I'm just kind of spitballing here, but since the increasing number of Americans, it, it kind of plays into the conversation I had with Michael Medved last Friday. As more and more Americans don't go to church, they have viewed people that do as bizarre, as hostile, as alien in some way, and not the kind of people that are able to participate in polite society. And I think they, these people, as they've become the majority, the secularists, for lack of a better description, as the secularists have become the majority – and by the way, I want to make clear, I, I am not a holy roller by any stretch, not at all. But I don't I would never think to discriminate against someone because they happen to be religious and deny them a child. But I think as the secularists have become the majority, they've come to view it as OK. And in this case, actually sanctioned by the government to overtly discriminate against people that are. Religious. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe. Hello, Joe. Joe. You mean Neil? Oh, Neil, even better. <laughs> you threw me off there, Frank. Uh, you know, Massachusetts, there, there are a bunch of real nitwits there. You know, they just declared a, uh, a, a state of emergency because they're overrun with migrants. They can't take care of the migrants. But a couple that wants to adopt a kid, that's off limits because the Catholic. And on the other hand, we know for a fact that the migrants are picking up kids, coming across into the country just so they can get in here. They make believe they're families. The kids, we don't even know who the kids belong to. I'm sure they're not vetting those people. They probably don't care about them. Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fault the, um, you know, the state of Massachusetts for, for that. I mean, I think that you're combining two failures of government institutions. One is the federal government failure to police who's coming in here. And the other is just very poor judgment on the part of the mass, of the Massachusetts authorities. Uh, Roger is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Ro- Roger, answer for your state. All right. Um, I just wonder, well, first of all, you see, you notice that Massachusetts is, is, has all these billboards all over the country um, promoting uh, acceptance of the LGBTQ community. They're all over the place. Every, you know, every, even Connecticut, it's, it's got billboards uh, say, come to Massachusetts. It's for, for all of us. All right. So promoting the LGBTQ uh, you know the reason I so the reason I called was um, how soon before the New Testament is going to be considered hate speech? 
Well, and the and, uh, and uh, you know, don't forget the Old Testament. The Old Testament was pretty violent at times. Well, yes, um, but there's a woman in Finland. She's part of the parliament there, but she is uh, in big trouble because she simply quoted the scripture about uh, a man, you know, leave his wife. I mean, leave his uh, home and be joined to his wife. And God made. Um, made them male and female and so on. And, and because she qu- quoted that scripture, I should have been able to quote that much better, better anyway. But um, um, because she quoted that scripture in writing, I guess, on a, on a computer or something, that uh, she's in big trouble with the, uh, with, with the government. And, and uh, you know, and, and the, other, the other thing, the other part of this that I just wanted to mention when you first brought it up was um, children – don't develop concepts of the subject unless they are being taught it by adults. Children left him. Children to be children aren't thinking about gender, and they're not. You know, they have to be being taught yeah. this sort of thing. To even you know, for someone to you know, for someone to complain about the fact that they're being denied, you know, denied. Right, but you know, uh, Roger. Thank you. But I I think it's just uh, we can have a broader discussion about um, whether you're born gay or bisexual, or whatever the case may be. I I think that's totally aside from the point here. We don't even know if the the child that they would have adopted would have been gay or lesbian or bisexual. So I mean, they're creating this nightmare scenario which may not even exist. I mean, it's just crazy. As far as banning the Bible goes, a Utah school district actually banned the Bible. Yes, the best-selling book of all time was banned by the Davis School District in Utah. They removed the King James Version of the Bible from its elementary and middle schools after a parent complained it was too violent and vulgar to be read by children. And then another parent from the same school district issued a complaint about the Book of Mormon, which is a religious text of uh, Utah's own Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint. Last year, the uh, state of Utah, the government, the Republican government, passed a law that bans pornographic or indecent books in school. So they used that law to get the Bible banned. Well, a week or two later... The another that school district voted to return the Bible to libraries and its middle and elementary schools. The book had been banned. Actually, it was a month later. The book had been banned after a parent complained that it was not age appropriate. Now, I mean, it's just it just goes to show you how far this can go. It can go pretty far. It's a, the slope is not just slippery. It is it is. Ice with banana peels on it. We'll uh, continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Uh, say your name twice because we have uh, we have Jake sitting in for Kenneth, and uh, he's not necessarily as experienced as Kenneth is. And if, if you call in claiming to be Neil, he may make you a joke. So whatever the case may be. Say your name twice. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other 
side of midnight with Frank Morano. Last night we let the liquor talk. I can't remember everything we said, but we said it all. You told me that you wish I was somebody you never met. But baby, baby, something's telling me this ain't over yet. No way it was our last night. I kissed your lips. Make you grip the sheets with your fingertips. Last bottle of Jack, we split a fifth. Just talking about life, going sip for sip. Yeah, you, you know you love to fight. And I say shit I don't mean. But I'm still going to wake up on you and me. I know that last night we let I think this is the first time I've heard this song. This is Last Night by Morgan Wallen. This is the number one song in the country right now. And it has been on the Billboard charts for 28 straight weeks. I'm listening to it. I don't know that I, uh, I don't know that I've heard it, but certainly people are buying the record or However, they measure music sales these days. It's very, uh, very popular. Number one song in the country last night. You, uh, Matt Blaze, you believe it's pronounced Morgan Whalen, not Wallen? I think it's Whalen. Whalen? All right, well, so be it. Have you heard this song before? I have heard it. I'm, I'm just not a fan of country. It never was. So to me, it's just like, eh. How it's been on number one for like 10 weeks is still beyond. It, I think it goes to show you the, um, there is an appeal to country music as well, and uh, whenever they don't, um, whenever they don't ban one of these country songs, they can do very well. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to get to your calls as uh, as we can in a moment. Uh, big shout out to our uh, all our listeners on uh, Talk fourteen hundred W O N D in Atlantic City. Speaking of Atlantic City, Governor Phil Murphy, the governor of the state of New Jersey, signed a bill. To create a $100 million fund to pay for maintenance and repairs for New Jersey boardwalks. This was a broadly bipartisan bill, which passed the Senate unanimously and cleared the assembly with overwhelming margins. And it allows the uh, Department of Community Affairs to issue grants to improve or remediate boardwalks all along New Jersey's coast in an effort to keep the state's shore communities bustling. The Jersey Shore is one of my favorite places to hang out. And uh, I think Governor Murphy, who I don't necessarily see eye to eye with on a lot of different things, he really captured the appeal of the Jersey Shore and the boardwalk when he signed this bill yesterday. To our shore communities that we will not let you fall behind. Frankly, we can't afford to let you fall behind. Because the wooden main streets of Atlantic City, along with every shore community, will lead us to New Jersey's economic and cultural future. And today we're investing in that future, as Marty mentioned, in a big way. In a few moments, I'll have the pleasure of signing the Boardwalk Preservation Fund Act into law. When signed, this bill, which passed alongside this year's budget, and again, I want to give the representatives from Legislative District 2 who supported that budget, will create a $100 million fund. 
that is specially designed to support the repair and renovation of boardwalks up and down the shore, from the Wildwoods to Atlantic City, from Seaside Heights to Asbury Park and all the other communities that host boardwalks. So I think that's great. I uh, absolutely love the Jersey Shore. And uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if that's an appropriate amount of money or an inappropriate amount of money, but at least it shows that uh, boardwalk maintenance is well on the minds of uh, of New Jersey's leaders. Speaking also of Atlantic City, they had the big Atlantic City Air Show yesterday, a salute to those who serve. It uh, took place along the beachfront and the boardwalk, and they had all sorts of performers, the Jersey Devils, 177th Fighter Wing of the New Jersey Air National Guard and the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. And uh, next year I'm going down there for this. This year I didn't go because it's a little tough during the week and everything, but uh, I would like to be down there. It's such a great show. People love it. And we, we spoke with the Chamber of Commerce. They invited us to come down there and do the show from there. But it's, it's just, it's a little tough during the week. I don't blame them for doing it during the week because during the summer, especially Atlantic City's packed every weekend. So I can absolutely understand why they want to try and do things the, on other days. But I, uh, I just think that, um, it's just, it, it makes sense because you draw people there on a Wednesday, which you don't normally do. And uh, it's a nice thing. Here's uh, a couple of people that were at that particular air show. The Atlantic City Air Show roaring into its 20th year. In front of crowds of spectators mesmerized by the sights and sounds in the sky. I love it. We come here every year. It's a great show. Great people. Love seeing the men in uniform. So that's nice. That guy seems certainly to have a good time. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment on uh, anything that we are are talking about, and I am, as I've disclo- I've disclosed, we I use the moniker superstar Frank Morano. That is because of the superstar status that I have achieved at at Bally's, right? And uh, probably means that I've I've gambled too much. Bally's made some interesting news recently. They announced that at their hotel, and I'm I'm not sure how I feel about this. I don't think I like it as the parent of a of a young boy. At their hotel, they are limiting the pool, the hotel pool, to guests 21 years of age and older. They announced this new policy. And they said, quote, due to customer demand, Bally's pool and fitness will be available to adults only. Uh, (laughs) They put out this statement on Instagram and they said, kick back, relax and take a dip. I guess they're trying to go for a new um, constituency there. I guess they're trying to brand themselves as a. A pool where you can get away from all these kids, get away from all the riffraff. I, I guess I get it. I, I guess they have to do something to try and distinguish themselves from the other prominent hotels like the Ocean and uh, the Hard Rock and the Borgata. But I don't know. I mean, if Atlantic City as a whole is trying to be more of a vacation resort and a vacation destination for families, I don't think this is a great thing. But they, um, the casino said complaints about children in the swimming pool prompted the new policy. The pool is an amenity for our hotel guests. After receiving many complaints, Bally's changed its pool accessibility to guests 21 years or older 
and it has been well received. That's the word from the general manager. And uh, on social media, I looked at a lot of the comments. The feedback was mostly positive, which I was surprised by. I'd say it's about 60 to 70 percent positive. And uh, if you have children and you're still hoping to cool down at an indoor venue this summer, they suggest going over to the new water park at Showboat, which I guess is a viable option. What's your view of this, uh, Matt Blaze? I know you don't have children. Maybe it doesn't affect you. But just as a matter of policy, do you think it's a, it's wise to ban children from hotel swimming pools like this? I think it has a lot to do with kids running around. I'm sure maybe it does. dangerous. I'm sure that's, that's all it is. Things like that. And look, when you're a parent and you're in Atlantic City, you may not be paying attention to your kid at the pool. You might just send the kid to the pool uh, while you're in the fair. casino. That's fair. And the kid's running around. Kids are running around like maniacs and bothering other people. So either they have, they should have their own pool uh, just for the kids. And then that would solve that problem. But now. You're talking about building a whole other pool in each casino. So, yeah, just take them to the water park. Yeah. Now, that's uh, that, that's certainly fair. Um, speaking of South Jersey, there has been so much talk, especially this week with another whale death on the on the beach. And a lot of people believe that wind energy has something to do this. Do with this. The, they're saying that the future of East Coast wind power could ride on the Jersey beach town of Ocean City, where we actually have a wide listenership in Ocean City. And I know our buddy Craig Eaton, who calls on to, into this show from time to time and who's a, a guest panelist on the um, Cats at Night show from time to time. He's got a beautiful house down in Ocean City. A lot of New Yorkers do. They do their thing. But they say Ocean City, which I, I'll be honest, I don't know that I've ever been to. Everyone says it's great. i got to check it out. But they say... Ocean City is America's greatest family resort. It is now the epicenter of opposition to wind energy projects off New Jersey and the East Coast. So residents of Ocean City and surrounding Cape May County, helped by an outside group opposed to renewable energy, they are mobilizing to stop Ocean Wind 1 which is a proposal to build up to 98 wind turbines the size of skyscrapers off the New Jersey coast, which could power a half a million homes. So the future of East Coast wind energy is really hanging in the balance here. If the opponents succeed in stopping the offshore wind here, they hope to create a template for derailing the 31 offshore wind projects that are in various stages of development all over the East Coast. And this is a key part of President Biden's plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are driving global climate change. Frank Coyne, who's with the group Protect Our Coast NJ, which has gathered already over half a million signatures on a petition opposing wind farms, said we have a lot of leverage. The objective is to hold them up and make the cost so overwhelming that they'll go home. So the story in Jersey is these plans by Orsted, which is a Danish multinational corporation, to build Ocean Wind 1, the largest offshore wind project. And they're hoping to clear a key regulatory hurdle. They're trying to build this about 15 miles off the state's southern coast. And the company has plans for a second project that's already been approved 
by state legislators. And the Democrats in New Jersey, in Trenton, they support both projects and see them as vital for meeting New Jersey's goal of reducing overall greenhouse gas emissions by 80 percent by 2050. Governor Phil Murphy said at the end of the day, it's imperative for our state's future. It's the right step to take. Um, I don't know. I've got some real concerns about wind energy, some real concerns about offshore wind specifically. I don't have a problem with windmills, um, although there are problems with doing things like killing birds. But I have problems and a lot of uh, problems. I have questions about the long-term effects and the short-term effects of offshore wind energy. All right, 800-848-9222. We have also been... um, talking about this horrible case of anti-Catholic bigotry coming out of Massachusetts where this uh, couple, the Burks, have not been able to adopt a child because of their religion. Lori Windham is an attorney that represents this couple, and uh, she was on, I think she was on Fox News. I'm not sure actually where she was. But um, this is her talking about the situation. The Burks are a wonderful, loving couple. Mike uh, plays the organ at Mass. Kitty is a cantor. Mike's an Iraq War veteran. They own a small business together. Kitty's actually worked with special needs children in the past. And after being unable to have children of their own, they open their hearts and open their home and foster, and they hope someday to adopt the child through the Massachusetts foster care system. After, as you said, a very lengthy application process, they were turned down, and the state was very clear. The reason they were rejected is because of their Catholic religious beliefs on issues like marriage and sexuality and gender. 800-848-9222, Original Rick is in New Jersey. Good morning. Good morning. S.S. Morano. How are you? Morano. All right. Um. About the LBGD in, in Massachusetts, I, I think it just happened to be they were Catholic, but I don't think it's just against Catholic. It's basically against anyone religious because do you know any major religion that dogma says it's okay to be gay? They all ref- frown on it. And if you read the Quran, they basically say you should put them to death. That's why in some countries they do. And so I guess no Islamic people can. Well, yeah, I made that very same point. Uh, that's exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. I no, no, that's okay. It's what you're always cautioning me about is to, um, you know, stop to, talking. Right? Yeah, stop yeah. talking. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it, it's overt hostile. I think if this were an Orthodox Jewish couple or an Islamic exactly. fundamentalist couple, this would be the exact same result. Well, and, and also. Where did the LGBTQ get so much power? I mean, I didn't hear any pork organizations calling saying, oh, Jewish people can't uh, adopt because they won't let the kid eat pork. I mean, where did these organizations get so strong that they're they're like overriding our rights as parents? I don't, you know, I don't that, that's that. another good point, Rick. I mean, uh, if you if this couple were were really into hunting or barbecuing or eating beef, would would this this Massachusetts agency have said, well, if a ch- if a child happened uh, w- wants to be a vegetarian, there that's going to be tough for them, and they're not going to respect their beliefs. You exactly. could say every family, right? Every couple has its uh, pluses and minuses 
in the minds of everybody, right? So there's no couple that is going to have a set of values that every group in the world finds acceptable. Every parent, you know, and that's part of life. Sorry. Exactly. No, I exactly. That's I, 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 I just don't understand where all this power is being given to, like the teachers. I mean, is it because we don't grab the power back? Is that it? We don't fight back in my... Well, I, I think a lot does have to do with this Oberfell decision that I that I mentioned. Uh, thank you, Rick. 800-848-9222. Eugene calling all the way from the Philippines. Hello, Eugene. Well, thank you for taking my call. Good my Thursday afternoon. But uh, those children are the exact type of children that we work with here. Um, I'm a former New which, Yorker. Which children are? What's that? Which children are the exact type that you work with? All backgrounds. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have a daughter that in May turned 11 years old that we adopted. When they called us, we did not say, well, what's the background of the parents? Are they bi? Are they gay? No. Four hours later, we met in person. I had the, the privilege of being the first one to hold this newborn little girl, and that's all it took. We adopted her, and uh, we work with more than 300 children here. And uh, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of religions. We don't question them about that. They're only little children. Well, and Eugene, I think that's great that you did that. And that's why I think it's such a shame that the state of Massachusetts has denied this opportunity to what I believe would be a very loving couple. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Bethpage. Hello, Chris. Hey, Frank. I'm very confused by this whole decision. And I always get confused because every day you wake up, there's new rules written by this whole woke community out there. Um, first of all, do you see the irony in this whole thing? Um, Catholics, for the most part, are very pro-life, pro-life. So the people that are making this decision to deny this child to go to this, we would seem to be a pro-life couple, they're probably very pro-choice. Because that's a very woke thing is to be pro-choice. I mean, the last election was lost basically by the Republicans over the whole, uh, you know, the right to choose uh, for women. So my point is, how did this state of Massachusetts get control of this child and how do they make the decision? Because I know you can. Why don't this couple go and adopt from a Catholic um, organization that has, you know, children that are ready to be adopted? You know what I mean? I'm always well it's because all I mean, I mean this whole thing. Uh, yeah, thank you, Chris. All all adoptions and all foster care issues in the state of Massachusetts are handled through that state's Department of Children and Families. And that makes sense, right? I mean, it makes sense to have a regulatory agency. You don't want to have couples just uh, kidnapping children off the street and saying this is our foster child, right? It makes sense to have some sort of regulation. But the regulation should be there to ensure children's safety, not hinder children's safety. And that's what they're doing in in this case. 
All right, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Spaceman by the Killers. The Killers are okay. Um, they were performing in Georgia, the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia. And they apologized after inviting a Russian drummer on stage during their concert and telling the booing crowd that he was their brother. Videos posted on social media showed the crowd booing and gesturing with their thumbs down, while Killer's frontman and singer Brandon Flowers said, quote, We don't know the etiquette of this land, but this guy's a Russian. Are you okay with Russian coming up here? Following the negative reaction from the crowd, Flowers added, You can't recognize if someone's your brother? He's not your brother? We're all separate? We're all separate on the borders of our country, so I'm not your brother? Am I not your brother being from America? And so the audience responds to his remarks with boos and all sorts of posts on social media that um, say that people were leaving the concert early. I don't think I was glad that this singer did what he did because, look, whatever Vladimir Putin and the Russians have done, the Russian government of the Russian army, that's not the fault of this one Russian drummer. I mean, they're booing a guy because he happens to be Russian. You know, the war in Iraq was a disaster for the people of the Middle East. I don't feel like I should be booed if I visit the Middle East because I'm an American. You can't hold this one guy accountable for the actions of Vladimir Putin. Well, so they issued a statement because that's what you do these days is you bow bow to the whims of the day saying it was never their intention to offend anyone whatever whatever i wish they hadn't uh, issued that statement uh big news is that uh, i saw my wife and i saw the third episode of only murders in the building loving it absolutely loving it steve martin martin short and selena gomez and meryl streep at all at their absolute best. Matt Blaze, have you seen this season yet? I have not finished the second season yet. They're only half hour episodes. How is, how is that possible? Uh, I, I didn't hear you, but it's okay. No big deal. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know what Matt Blaze is so busy doing. He doesn't have a, a, a 20 month old to, uh, 
you know, to chase around. So, you know, it's funny. I'm always talking about how, um, I, uh, how I, I think my son is so bright. I also think he might be a little bit shy at times. Now, oh. I wouldn't think of it because he's a little bit of a showman, but we went to the baseball game on Sunday and JJ from Coco Melon was, was there. And I took him over to meet JJ because he likes Coco Melon. It's a children's show. I had never heard of it before two months ago, but he, he likes it. He watches it. And I said, oh, Carmen, we're going to go say, we're going to meet JJ. You have to say hi, JJ. And we're practicing. Hi, JJ. We walk over there. He's frozen. He doesn't say anything. He just stares at the figure. So then the whole rest of the day and for the last three or four days, he's all, all he's been saying is, Hi, JJ. He says it all the time. He wouldn't say it to JJ, but when he's with me, when he's with his mother, when he's sitting there eating, he says... Hi, JJ. All day long, he says it. Hi, JJ. And yet he wouldn't say it to JJ himself. I don't know. Maybe he was nervous, but I, I, I felt like he should have risen to the occasion. And then he wouldn't run the bases. He was walking the bases, and then as soon as we finished, then he would run. I don't get it. Hey, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. The Other Side of Midnight. 77, Local Spotlight. I don't begrudge the mayor, whoever he or she may be, for having a robust press operation, especially in a city like New York. New York has one of the most large and active press corps in the whole world. Sincerely. So you need people to deal with that. You have people reaching out to you 24 hours a day. Anytime something goes wrong in this city, the mayor is expected to have a response. So I wouldn't begrudge the mayor for having a press secretary, a communications director, a deputy press secretary, a deputy communications director, even a press assistant or a communications assistant of some sort. However, I must say I was perplexed that City Hall Press Secretary Fabian Levy this week was promoted to deputy mayor of communications and this puts him in charge of mayor eric adams direct to constituent communication strategy which includes a radio show now which is done on a semi-regular basis it includes a podcast it includes a newsletter and i'm not saying fabian levy is not capable he certainly is but why does he need to be made a deputy mayor what this looks to me like is the mayor is taking someone that he likes, that he gets along with personally and professionally and giving him the title of deputy mayor so that this person can make $250,000 a year in taxpayer money. It's not clear to me what this new role is going to include that his old role as press secretary didn't include. And in some ways this is similar to what he did on public safety. Uh, Every other mayor had a police commissioner and a fire commissioner that were accountable directly to the mayor. Mayor Adams creates this new position of deputy mayor for public safety and the police commissioner reports to that person. Now we're going to have a press secretary and the press secretary is going to report to the deputy mayor 
of communications. What's the point? Why add these extra layers of bureaucracy, especially when the mayor himself says that we are going to be facing a significant budget gap because of this migrant crisis? It makes no sense, and it looks like the only place where there's a limitless amount of money is on the mayor's staff because he has no shortage of friends and associates to hire at very nice salaries. By the way, Deputy Mayor Levy, if uh, you're hiring for your old position, let me know where I can submit my resume. Beam me up! To be continued. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. What do you think of when you hear the term psychopath? You think of some serial killer, a movie villain, kind of like Javier Bardem in uh, No Country for Old Men. Well, new research is reframing psychopathic tendencies, suggesting that their presence in all of us to some extent, while highlighting successful psychopaths who avoid trouble and potentially benefit from such traits. I was fascinated by this piece that I read in Knowable magazine. Some psychologists argue that the focus on violent and criminal psychopathic behavior has marginalized the study of what they call successful psychopaths, people who have psychopathic tendencies but who can stay out of trouble and perhaps even benefit from these traits in some way. So researchers haven't yet reached a consensus on which traits distinguish successful psychopaths from serial killers, but they're working to clarify what they say is a misunderstood branch of human behavior. Some even want to reclaim and rehabilitate the concept of psychopathy itself. Louise Wallace is a lecturer lecturer in uh, forensic psychology at the University of Derby in England. 
She said most of what people think about psychopaths is not what psychopathy actually is. It is not glamorous. It is not a spectacle. Psychopathic traits exist in everyone to some degree and shouldn't be glorified or stigmatized. So it's very interesting. And this this article, I'm going to share this article on uh, on my Facebook page if you want to read it, uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. I found it really interesting. But researchers over the last few decades who wanted to study psychopathy, they often did so in prisons. And so that fueled depictions in books and films of the psychopathic profile being somebody dangerous. Well, now that view is being challenged. In the last 15 years or so, psychiatry has embraced what's called a dimensional approach based on the ideas of scales and spectrums of trait and symptom severity. And it replaced the categorical approach, which took a more binary view of mental syndromes and assessed whatever uh, what, whether conditions were present or not. So seeing psychopathy through this different lens opened new doors to researchers. One of the key psychopathic characteristics was boldness, boldness. And um, psychopathy, it's a, a, apparently a composite of several interacting traits. And the traditional model of a psychopathic mind focuses on meanness and disinhibition. But in psychological terms, meanness is aggressive, resource-seeking, without regard for others. Disinhibition shows itself as a lack of impulse control. People who are high on both traits feel little or no empathy and find it hard to control their actions, and that often has violent consequences. But as part of this recent rethinking, Psychologists have introduced this new factor of boldness, which they define as a mix of social dominance, emotional resiliency, and venturesomeness. According to uh, Christopher Patrick, who's a clinical psychologist at Florida State, he said you could think of boldness as fearlessness expressed in the realm of interactions with other people where you're not intimidated easily. You're more assertive, excuse me, more assertive, even dominant with other people. A bold person is not necessarily a psychopath, but add boldness to high degrees of meanness and disinhibition, and you could have a psychopath who's more able to use their social confidence to mask the extremes of their behavior and excel in some leadership positions. In fact, it might be that the degree of boldness correlates pretty closely with whether someone with traditionally psychopathic traits can make their life a success. Other psychopathic traits that people can also benefit, uh, can also benefit people in certain careers. Meanness, for example, it shows itself as a lack of empathy. And they say in the corporate world, that can actually help. You want someone who could perform under pressure and make quick decisions without displaying high levels of empathy because they need to be able to make those cutthroat choices. So uh, I think it's really, really interesting. Some people are challenging this, but apparently there are this, there's this whole class of successful psychopaths out there. 
and they've even developed a successful psychopathy scale, a 54-question scale designed to identify and assess psychopathic traits in the general population. Maybe I'll take that. Let's see. Can I uh, – is, is the questions available? All right. Well, I'll, I'm going to – I'll see. I, I have to read a paper first, so I'm not sure I'm up for reading the paper. But I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see about these 54 um, – you know, 54 questions on the successful psychopathy scale. So if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. We're going to do the $1,000 minute and uh, talk with Brian Kilmeade in just a bit. Get his take on the news of the day. He's going to be joining us in about uh, 22 minutes. Looking forward to that conversation. Happy to take your calls on anything we have discussed thus far. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two, and uh, if you want to be heard, you can also email me at frank dot at redappleaudionetworks dot com. I'm working to put together a uh, charity softball game in my hometown on Saturday. So if you're interested in playing, we could use a few more players. You can email me as well at uh, frank dot at uh, networks dot com. And if you want to play, we'll uh, we'll give you the details. Just email me, and I'll I'll fill you in. All right, uh, Johnny is in Sullivan County. Johnny, what's on your mind? Hey, Frank. Um, earlier the discussion about the foster, uh, the foster, the family trying to adopt the children mm-hmm. in Massachusetts wouldn't allow them because they're into church and all that. This is all part of the evil uh, movement we've been going through for years now. When I was very very young. And I'm kind of revealing my age here. Back in like 1980, my grandfather sat me down in his Brooklyn home and gave me a whole lecture, said, I really need to talk to you about what's going to be going on. And I said, what are you talking about? And he told me that from this point on, we're going to be living in what's in the devil's world. And I said, Grandpa, what are you talking about? And he started telling me how little by little we're going to start noticing changes of how Corruption will infiltrate every aspect of our society. Um, the, it, the, the, the necessities will become unaffordable as opposed to just the luxuries. You'll see people change in ways you'll never think was imaginable. And he said, this is what's going to be coming. And I really thought that he was, you know, going senile or something. But everything he told me way back when has happened. He was a visionary. He saw this coming. And according to him, this is all in, all revealed in the Bible and subliminal messages. And um, I see things going on today, this insanity that we're witnessing, that a lot of people want to turn a blind eye to because they can't handle handle dealing with it. Um, it's like when I was young and I used to watch like the Twilight Zone episodes, and then when the episode ended, I'd be like, oh, wow, my God, what a great episode. Could you imagine if that actually happened? Well, those episodes are actually <laughs> happening in more than some in this day and age. And and, and it really, you got to look at what's going on out there. It's just, it, it really makes you think. And that's why they're against the church and things like that, because the church is revealing all of this. Um, and this is all the movement towards leaning to an evil communist society. Yeah. And uh, I think, uh, thank you, Johnny. I, um, I get what you're saying. I don't know that – I think you're inserting a political dimension in it that 
I don't know is the overt goal of the people that rejected this Catholic couple. I think, um, I, I think so many people have just had their brains trained to be hostile towards religion and to associate religion with intolerance. And I think this rejection of this children, of these children going to this foster couple is a reflection of that. I don't think whoever rejected them said, we're going to reject these people so that we can get on to the next step to communism. But I get what you're saying. I, I absolutely do. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning. Um, I wanted to talk about psychopaths, but I have to address something about this uh, adoption issue in Massachusetts, if I could. Um, you didn't mention this, and I actually listened to an article the uh, both members of the couple had made statements to the social workers that sounded like they would have a negative impact on children if they happened to be trans or gay. For instance, the wife said that if one of the children turned out to be a lesbian, that she wouldn't have a problem with them getting married, but they wouldn't be allowed to have sex. What kind of person would tell a child that if they're gay, they should never have sex? That, to me, makes a person unsuitable to be a parent of such a child. But, David, I think that's what they took. Into, yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of there are a lot of couples with with biological uh, children that have the same belief system. Now, I obviously don't believe that, but there are a lot of couples that that do believe that kind of thing. It, do you really think it's fair to deny a, a loving and supportive home to a couple that may or may not be gay or, or trans or whatever the case may be just because of that one comment? All right. That's not a decision I would have made. I think they went overboard. But I think you have to take those things into consideration because you don't want children subjected to an environment, especially with the teen suicides and everything else that we've talked about multiple times that could subject them to feeling like they're uh, like they're not worthy or they're less than everybody else. That that was the thing. But on psychopaths, I think from the description that you gave, there are certain fields that I think are riddled with these type of people. I mean, I could I, I think the medical field has a lot of people like this. I think politics has a lot of fields like uh, has a lot of people like this. And I know from experience that medical malpractice defense attorneys definitely fit that category. I, I the, this idea that you don't feel empathy for other people does serve people very well in those type of of, of um, jobs because if you have feeling for other people or you worry about other people, you could never probably be a, a, a medical malpractice defense attorney or even a politician because you have to make decisions constantly that you know if you valued other people the way that you or I do, I think. You wouldn't be able to do your job. These are, I don't know how accurate this one article I just found online is, but, uh, to, in line with what you're saying, these are the fields that, um, they say are the most attractive to psychopaths. And tell me if, if you agree with this. Uh, there's a few. I'll, I'll read them and then you can tell me if you agree. Accountants, chefs, surgeons, sales, HR, nonprofit workers, Middle managers, first responders, construction workers, politicians, CEOs, and uh, bankers. 
those are the ones that they say, and I haven't read the article, I don't know what the basis is, those are the ones they claim are the most attractive to psychopaths. What's your what's your view of those fields? Yeah, I would agree with that to a large extent. I mean, take first, you wouldn't think first responders, but when you think about it, first responders have to make decisions constantly that if they were constantly, if they were worried about, uh, you know, morals and ethics all the time, they probably wouldn't right. be able to do their job. I mean, right. Yeah, so... I think in a way, even though we come to think of psychopaths as being related to violent crime, these are uh, actually um, traits that may actually serve society as long as they're harnessed properly. Yeah, it's very interesting. It, it really is. Yeah, it. no, I, and I wouldn't have considered first responders either. But when I when I read that and I heard your description, it does stand to reason. David, thank you for the call. Very, a very good call. My neighbor is a police officer. When I look in his eyes, I could absolutely see him snapping at any minute and going crazy. I really could. Great guy. Great guy. We're friends. But uh, I could absolutely see him just yeah, just a couple of inches one way or another. So I just took this one um, psychopathy test. This is on the website idrlabs.com. It was not a 54-question test. So I don't know if it's the same psychopathy scale that I referenced that the uh, the other group has. But according to this psychopathy test that I took, I have uh, my total psychopathy is 43%. And I am below the threshold of what it means to be a psychopath. M- the most psychopathic behavior that I have is in the field of interpersonal style where I have a 58% psychopathic interpersonal style. I have a 42% psychopathic lifestyle, a 31% um, psychopathic overt antisocial features. So according to this, and again, I don't know who made this. I don't know how credible this is. But according to this, this makes me 33.5% more psychopathic than the average person, but I do not repeat not qualify as a psychopath on the psychopathy checklist. Very proud of that. You are listening to a radio show of someone that is officially not a psychopath. I am betting that's a bet that many of you would have lost. Am I right? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Bobby's in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Bobby. Man, you're scaring the heck out of your audience, you know? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Charlie's in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hey, right. I called to answer a question or respond to a comment this one call Rick said you were talking to, and he was saying, where do these LGBT groups get the power that they get? Where do they get the power? Where do they get the influence over society? Well, I asked a friend of mine that question. Uh, he repairs computers. He's in the LGBT community movement. He's a high-ranking member in the city of Philadelphia where he lives and works. And I asked him just that question. And his answer, his response to me was interesting. He said that these groups, they simply observe the results, the practices, and the successes that the civil rights groups did in the 1950s and 60s and to a later extent, the 70s, and they simply piggybacked 
and modeled their own practices, their own working with the media, their own strategies, their their own way of getting their goals, implementing the goals that they want. And the power that they obtain is they simply started doing what the civil rights movements did. And it started out in a question of the guy said, well, somebody said, well, why do we have a gay pride month in June? Why do we have a gay pride month? And the answer is, well, we have a black history month, so you can't you can't criticize one without the other. And, and Sid Rosenberg was talking about that several days ago on his show. But, I mean, th- this is where these LGBT groups, to answer the guy Rick's question, get their powers, that they're simply piggybacking off of the successes of the civil rights movement. And so you can't really criticize one movement unless you're prepared to criticize the other. Does does that make sense? To yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, and I, 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 I may, that does make sense in the way that you term it. It absolutely, uh, it absolutely does. Hey, um, I know we have a lot of people listening to this show, seriously, that are in need of uh, kidney transplants. Well, this is uh, an interesting story. A genetically modified kidney taken from a donor pig has functioned normally after being transplanted into a brain-dead patient more than a month ago. Doctors uh, came out yesterday and revealed all this stuff. Researchers say that the patient who had both kidneys removed and was sustained in their vegetative state while relying on the new organ. The success relies on advanced gene editing techniques, the presence of a sugar molecule known as alpha-gal, and it produced by most mammals but not humans, causes acute organ rejection by the body after surgery. But this recent news is the fifth demonstration of kidneys from pigs modified modified to not produce the molecules being used as transplants. So this is very exciting. I mean, if you're listening to a... If you're, if you're listening to this as you're awaiting a kidney transplant, this is very exciting news. I think we're probably a long ways away from pigs routinely being source material for human, humans that need an organ transplant, but it is very exciting nonetheless. All right. Couple of quick things I want to mention. Uh, just quick update on the Maui situation. The death toll out of Maui is now reported to be 107, 107. And as we continue to explore what the cause of the Maui wildfires was, it looks like it was the power lines. It looks like the power lines likely caused Maui's first reported fire. The data suggests this. The video suggests this. And the finding adds to evidence that the island's electric utility was the source of at least some fires reported on August 7th and 8th. And now the question that this utility is going to have to answer for, probably in a court of law, and I predict that they are going to do the same thing that happened with that California utility. They're going to have to pay out billions in a settlement and go bankrupt. But why didn't they cut off the power? Why didn't they? It is really, really just reprehensible to think that this failure of a basic safety precaution in the midst of a hurricane has resulted in all these deaths and all the billions of dollars in in property damage. 
You know, it's interesting. Yesterday or the day before, I lose track of which day is what, I mentioned that they're begging tourists not to go to Maui. But this is presenting quite a tourism conundrum because they say that Maui may not be able to fully recover unless tourism comes back. Tourism makes up 80% of Maui's wealth, according to their Economic Development Board. So the sight of tourists swimming, snorkeling, sunbathing on the beach in Maui, while these rescue teams continue to search through the rubble, is driving these residents who lived through this crazy. But some local authorities and some business are welcoming the travelers saying that their presence is going to boost the island's economy during the rebuilding period and the period that they need it most. So a pause on tourism while the island grieves and recovers, it would deal a massive blow to the Hawaiian economy. The governor of Hawaii, Josh Green, said when you restrict any travel to a region, you really devastate its own local residents in many ways more than anyone else. So I think that's interesting. It has me kind of rethinking that. I was listening to um, a podcast right before the show. It was uh, it was actually the, the previous caller mentioned Sid Rosenberg. I was actually listening to Sid Rosenberg's podcast. He had an interesting interview with Anthony Scaramucci, and they insert these ads into the podcast. And uh, I think it's kind of a random thing. I think it's kind of done by computer. Who knows? Right now, uh, there could be uh, an ad for a teeth whitening strip or, I don't know, uh, a, a hair hair restoration clinic, right? It could be inserted right now. Who knows? But anyway, um, there was an ad voiced by Kelly Cuoco, who's an actress and a personality and it was all about uh, visualizing certain places. And she did a whole thing about how right now I'm visualizing Maui. And it was all about her wanting to go to Maui and going to Maui and be on vacation to Maui. I don't even remember what it was a commercial for. But I, I thought initially, wow, that's so insensitive with 106 people dead and then begging people not to go there. And I was all set to get the audio from that commercial and play. And then I came across uh, this article saying that they think that tourism might be a key way for bringing back the Hawaiian economy. So now I have a more nuanced view on this, much as I do with everything, especially diner orders. Brian Kilmeade uh, joins us in a moment, but first we're going to play the $1,000 Minute. If you think you have what it takes to become a thousandaire, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, we are going to uh, p- give you 10 trivia questions to answer. If you can answer them, then you are, in 60 seconds or less, then you are going to be $1,000 richer. So go ahead and dial right now, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
It's MyPillow's 20-year anniversary with over 80 million MyPillows sold. Mike Lindell and his employees want to thank each and every one of you by giving you the lowest price in history on their MyPillows. You'll get queen-size MyPillows, regular price $69.98, now only $19.98, and just $10 more for king size. MyPillow's patented fill adjusts to your exact individual needs to help you get the best sleep ever. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio podcast square to get the amazing offers on the queen-size MyPillow for only $19.98. Call 800-887-2185, promo code 1234. You'll also receive deep discounts on all MyPillow products such as bed sheets, mattress toppers, pet beds, mattresses, my slippers, and so much more. Take advantage of the biggest sale in MyPillow's history. That's MyPillow.com, promo code 1234, or call 800-887-2185. Family-owned for almost 50 years, get out to Il Cortile on Mulberry Street. Amazing Sunday sauce, steaks, chops, seafood, pasta, and more. They've got delicious food, amazing service, and a great atmosphere with a beautiful indoor open-air atrium garden room with an ancient Roman wall shipped in from Italy. Go see my friends Tommy and Sal. Tell them Frank Morano sent you. See the menu at ilcortile.com. That's I-L-C-O-R-T-I-L-E.com. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Oh, she's sweet but a psycho, a little bit psycho. At night she's screaming, I'm on my mind, I'm on my mind. Oh, she's hot but a psycho, so left but she's right though. At night she's screaming, I'm on my mind, I'm on my mind. She'll make you curse, but she a blessing. She'll rip your shirt, but then a second you'll be coming back, back for second with your pain. You just can't help it. Max, sweet but a psycho. I know so many women that this song could apply to, let me tell you. And more than a few fellas as well. All right, without further ado, uh, let us see if we can't give away some money, shall we? It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let's say hello to Bob in Baltimore. Hello, Bob, if that's your real name. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, Bob, have you heard this segment before? Yes, I have, and I've been trying. Okay, great. All right, so you know what to do then, right? Yes. All right, you're going to be uh, you're gonna be okay. we got some good questions for you, all right? Okay. You, you ready to go? Yes. What is the combination of dirt and water called? Mud. What relation to you is your father's brother? Uncle. What popular film about a children's toy has been banned in Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, and Algeria? Barbie. Who was president of the United States during the Civil War? Lincoln. What is the name of the magical nanny in a classic Disney movie? Mary Poppins. In which continent is the Sahara Desert located? Africa. 
What planet is closest to the sun? Venus. Ah, no, I'm sorry. You're doing really well. You got up to question seven. Um, It was Mercury. Mercury. I was going to choose that. I just, I tried to put them babies in line. I hear you, brother. I hear you. You got to listen every other Wednesday to Dr. Sky. There's usually a, a Mercury reference uh, in the course of our hour-long conversation. Bob, great job, though. You got up to number seven. I'm going to put you on hold. Give um, give uh, Jake your your information, and we'll see if we can't give you a consolation prize of some sort, okay? Type of magnet. <laughs> yeah, hey, I hope so. I hope so, Bob. Hang on. Um, meantime, we have the great Brian Kilmeade on the line, a man who is uh, tearing it up on television, is one of the most listened to nationally syndicated radio talk show hosts in the country, doing a great job as the host of uh, One Nation with uh, Brian Kilmeade, uh, One America, and uh, he is just uh, a New York Times bestselling author, writes a great deal about history. Brian, it is great to talk with you again. How have you been? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for that great introduction. Just crazy. One of these crazy weeks. I mean, what, do you, what are we going to say about this? One trial after the next. We have the, cut, uh, the cusp of an, uh, the first debate. We don't know if the front runner is actually going to show up. We know he's got to turn himself in. A lot of drama. <laughs> so let's talk about that first, since uh, that is going to be on Fox less than a week from today. You have the issue of the the, the leading candidate. They still don't know if he's going to show up, and the RNC is making people want to sign this sign this loyalty pledge, which apparently Trump doesn't want to sign. Christie doesn't seem eager to sign it. Where are we going? Give me a preview of how you see Wednesday night's debate playing out on Fox. Well, I think Christie will sign it. Uh, you know, he always has this caveat. He goes, well, Trump will sign it, but he doesn't mean it. Uh, and Trump said there's about four people I would not support. Um, I, I sense that if he wants to do it, he'll sign it. Because I don't think Ronald McDaniel can back off at this point. Uh, so I, I think that he's, uh, you know, Trump will sign it. I think the drama that I, I only authored this, I'm, I'm just speculating. So I'm not saying that it's been validated, but... Trump's still going to get the narrative back. He knows it's not going to look good to be fingerprinted, mugshotted. They're bringing, making these guys go to a prison to turn themselves in. The 19, this this lunatic prosecutor running for re-election, doing photo shoots, wants it the day be, wants the trial the day before Super Tuesday. Yeah, racketeering, 19 people, all in coordination. We'll get ready in six months. Sounds fantastic. Uh, while there's other uh, three other major cases going on, not going to happen. Just goes to show you, she's planning it before Super Tuesday. This is all about the election. Maybe he says, you know, this is humiliating. This is bad. You know, they're going to watch me go in. They, they, you know, you're going to see the mugshot. Well, how do I get rid of that? I go and show up at the debate. I don't announce it. I just show up. They have to put a podium in at the last minute. And then his opponents, instead of saying this guy's got too many court cases, he knows the public sentiment, the Republican side, the people that uh, are going to vote uh, Republican are going to be sympathetic. Before many people feel is uh, being overcharged, being pure politics, and the numbers and the stats say it. I could think that drama might work for him. What do you think? I could absolutely see it. I could also see a situation where he turns himself in to the Fulton County DA to take attention away from the debate. I mean, if he turns himself in at uh, 
at, you know, at, at, at 4.30 in the afternoon. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know if he can go a little later. But um, and then the debate takes place in prime time. I have to think, aside from Fox, the bulk of the rest of the coverage is all going to be focused on him and his mugshot. And we've already seen that that doesn't seem to be having any sort of a deleterious effect on him in the Republican primary polls. Yeah, I, I don't know if he has the anger towards Fox that he had in 2016, say a month ago. Uh, I see. Or even a month ago, two months ago. I, I really feel, this is my opinion, uh, and I haven't talked to him directly. I'll see him at the debate. I'll be covering the debate in Milwaukee. Uh, I hear it went well when they went out to New Jersey. I don't think Trump is that suicidal to say, let me keep Fox on the outside and make the Fox seem like the bad guy. Really? All our ratings uh, are as strong as ever. Leading up to this debate, we're going to get 25, 30 million people watching. Um, a lot of them are Trump supporters. Why create friction when you don't need to, when you got four major cases and you got all these uh, cantankerous legal experts coming after you? Do you really want to alienate Fox, where you've been, you have a history dating back to almost the day we started? coming on i mean from everybody he knows he could walk in the green room and he could walk in the makeup room he could walk into the newsroom i still think he know 50 percent of the people so i'm not think i'm not thinking that he wants to hurt fox on wednesday i think he wants to help himself do you think people still watch if it's a if it's a trumpless debate oh yeah i don't think there's any doubt about it. i mean would it be as many no uh because that's just who trump is i mean if you look at cnn I just did an experiment the other day, and I just said, how far can they go without doing a Trump segment? They do one Hawaiian segment, and then they go back to Trump every hour. It's the Trump legal cases, uh, Trump's uh, last presidency, uh, Trump and Biden. You know, They don't talk about the president of the United States. They don't talk about a guy that didn't even acknowledge this devastating fire that wiped out the whole island. He said no comment. He's trumpeting Bidenomics, then laughing that he mislabeled it on purpose and told you it's all about green energy. When when we were told, when we said this is not the Inflation Reduction Act, we were mocking him. Really? A year later, he's like, yeah, I totally duped you. I mean, this guy making up lies about seeing a bridge fall, making up lies about uh, when he was born, his father, his grandfather died the same day in the same hospital. It never happened. That dumb conductor story he goes back to. I mean, what they do is they go back to Trump. So he he's they they're living off him where I don't think our network lives off Trump. I, I really don't. If you look, just just do an experiment. Look at an hour. And there's a lot of intrigue out there. Vivek Ramaswamy is a great story. Uh, Ron DeSantis. Can he can he can he get his can he get his feet uh, underneath him? Uh, Tim Scott's got the most money. He's like surging the most outside Trump. So is he going to is going to make something happen there? So I think the rain's going to be big. Uh, they'd be a lot bigger with Trump. But Trump, it's going to be interesting because you're not going to benefit just ripping Trump. I mean, Mike Pence coming after Trump, even though he says, listen, the Russia thing was a hoax. We're very proud of the border. We're proud of our foreign policy, proud not to be in foreign wars. And where the rubber hits the road is uh, they tried to hang him. Okay, that's that tends to be uh, way on you. Uh, and maybe you have some bitterness. If uh, maybe Sid tried to do that, I like Sid, but he did try to rally a crowd to hang me. So you might say I like Sid up until that moment. But if Chris Christie uh, is going to rail the whole time on Trump, I don't think that's going to work for him. So therefore, if he's there, I don't think he's going to get hammered. 
If he doesn't show up, I don't think they're going to hammer him because the people that they want to win over like the front runner. So it's going to be fascinating. It will indeed. Uh, you mentioned the Georgia indictment. Uh, a very interesting case, very different from, in some respects, the other three indictments that we've seen thus far. It's uh, similar in terms of uh, in terms of the crimes or purported crimes committed to the most recent federal indictment, but it's different in that this case would be televised. Also different in that uh, if this stay if this case stays in the state court rather than the federal court, this would be the the one case where, uh, excepting the New York case, which I think most legal observers don't give a lot of uh, credibility to, this would be the one case where Trump is not able to pardon himself if he is elected or just to have his Department of Justice pull the plug on any prosecution. Some people, even conservatives like uh, Andrew McCarthy, have said this this case could present the most peril to Trump. What's your view on this case, the political and the legal implications for Trump? Well, I, I go back to Dan Abrams last week. He, you know, he's hardly a right-wing firebrand, said this is overlaps Jack Smith's case. There's no reason for this. In fact, it, it gums up the works. And then I read Mark Levin's great legal mind said, don't let anybody tell you that you can't pardon this George, you can't pardon yourself if you're Donald Trump, you win the presidency, and you can't pardon yourself in the state case. So uh, also, I think that you have 19 people there conspiring to do what? Get get electors in and overturn an election. There's another side there. Jonathan Charlie's like, there's a strong defense. I listened to Julian Epstein yesterday. I was in Washington, D.C., and I interviewed Julian Epstein. He is a Democratic attorney. Uh, he worked for the Judiciary Committee. He's a senior counsel, and he said, there's a lot of problems with this case, and I'm a Democrat, and I just think this is way overcharged, and this is all politics, and I'm, I was flabbergasted. And he said these Republicans are celebrating, excuse me, Democrats are celebrating are way over their skis. So I think each case has a challenge, and he says, you know, the documents case has a big challenge, and it's going to be complicated. And he said, how can you honestly say you can bring these trials forward and not interfere with the election? And this woman comes out and has it the day before Super Tuesday. So that is pure politics, too. Mark Meadows has already made a maneuver. Let's make this into federal court. Five others have other legal challenges. So when's this case going to come, Frank? Frank, in November, wait, right. October 31st? Right. Is that what, I mean, and you're going to say it's still not affecting the election? So I, I know this. I mean, no one knows exactly how this is going to play out. Jack Smith seems way... Uh, overcharging everything. His aggression is insane. The president's looking at 700 years in prison, a 100 charges. How could some people actually say that, that, that this is not political? I mean, you got Rex Ewerman sitting in prison, a possible serial killer who has a better chance, who has been charged less than Donald Trump. Let me ask you about the other legal issue that has captivated the political world, the elevation of Mr. Weiss, the Delaware U.S. attorney, as the special counsel in uh, the Biden case. This is uh, having a lot of people scratch their heads saying uh, you have a person who whistleblower after whistleblower has said 
gave somewhat favorable treatment to Hunter Biden, putting it mildly. And now you're elevating this person to special counsel without necessarily an explanation from him as to why he needed the powers of a special counsel or uh, an explanation from Merrick Garland as to who said that a special counsel was not needed and that Weiss had all the authority that he needed over the course of the last 10 months. No explanation from him as to why that has changed and why that's no longer the case. Where do you think this whole situation with the Hunter Biden investigation goes? And do the Republicans risk overplaying their hands at some point on this one? Well, I don't think so, uh, because this is a fight between Democrats. I mean, David Weiss, I don't know if he's a Republican or not, but the way I understand it, and I had to get educated on this, even if you're a Republican president, if you go to, into a blue state, you say, hey, guys, who's your who's your who's your uh, your nominee for a prosecuting attorney? You know, who's the guy you want forward or woman? And they put him forward. So they don't know anything about him. Trump doesn't know anything about this guy. You know, William Barr doesn't know anything about him. But he said, you know, David Weiss, OK, uh, take this case. And they did enough to background check to leave it in his hands. So David Weiss is now fighting with the attorneys for Hunter Biden who said that, you know, David Weiss blew up the plea deal. And he said, no, no, the reason why there's no plea deal is solely on you. All right, so I don't know what the Republicans are doing. Then you have two whistleblowers who never, neither one said they are a Republican, who came out and said, David Weiss said, you know, I'd like to get a special prosecutor. I got rejected, and I want to bring this to Los Angeles and D.C. Both uh, attorneys wouldn't take it. So then Weiss denies it, but it turns out, that Merrick Garland, two weeks later, says you got special prosecutor status. So which makes me think the whistleblowers were 100% right when they took contemporaneous notes and said that's exactly what he wanted. I don't know what Republicans are doing wrong there. So now he's going to legitimately try a case. And all i got to ask you is, I am very little interested in the gun charge, even though he deserves to pay for that because his dad is such a crazy gun guy. Uh, and, you know, you broke the law, you broke the law. But I have very little interest in that. Uh, uh, the tax charge, it just goes to show you how ridiculous it is. You, I don't know if you guys have done your taxes or people listening to us have done their taxes. If you do a speech, let's say, and they, they give you X amount of dollars, uh, you got to pay 40% of that right away. And then you gotta, you got to go ahead and chronicle the travel. you gotta, you got to itemize all this stuff. And if they have one thing, uh, they, they're going to hit you. So if you have any side money, if you drive an Uber or things like that, you know, if you have money that comes to you in bulk, you got to write that check immediately or else you're going to get screwed. This guy went years without doing anything while making millions of dollars, and his fine is $100,000? Are you kidding? That's crazy. But the bigger story is his foreign investment. What were you doing? Where is the money now? Whose account is it in? You need every nickel, let alone every million dollars. So they're up to $20 million known. Now, next week you'll see it. It's going through legal. I interviewed Shokin who's the one that Joe Biden bragged about firing, that was looking into Burisma, knew all about Devin Archer and Hunter Biden, was looking into their roles on that energy company, which was, they say, was the definition of corruption. And they fire him and say he was corrupt. He said, no, no, I was called out of retirement by Pershenko, the predecessor to Zelensky, to do him a favor. And they fired me because I was getting too close to his son. You're going to see this interview next week. No one's interviewed him. Uh, He says he's living a humble life, living off... His Social Security, his version of Social Security in Ukraine right now, watching the war rage around him, uh, what he says is very significant. So I, do I think Republicans going too far? No, I think this is about Joe Biden. And I think Republicans uh, saw the president ham-handedly use Rudy Giuliani uh, to create havoc uh, uh, in Ukraine and get the president in trouble. I thought he was totally responsible for that. Uh, 
but he was on to something. But that's not the way you do it. You don't go you don't go hunt down an opponent uh, and say, I've got to find out what's wrong with Joe Biden. I'm going to go send Rudy Giuliani to do it, the most high-profile prosecutor right. in the world uh, who, who's rattling everyone's cage. I don't want to go through that again, but I don't think Republicans are overdoing it. I think they, they can't believe how Democrats go into their way to keep them from finding out the truth. Devin Archer uh, spoke on, uh, on tape to Tucker Carlson, said a lot more than he did in those transcripts about what his son was up to uh, Joe Biden's son was up to, and Joe Biden's role. Brian Kilmeade, uh, do you have an idea of what's in store for uh, One Nation on Saturday night yet? Well, I got the the wildly popular. Oh, don't um, tell me. Co-host quiz. Oh, oh, the co-host uh, quiz. Co-host I thought it was another me. Sid Rosenberg feature. It's back. It's captured the the, the imagination of a, of a country. And then um, <laughs> we're going to have Kelly and Conway break down and preview the debate. And we also. Um, have part two of Dr. Jordan Peterson, where he talks about what he has found the key to happiness. And he's gone through depression in his life. He's now, this guy's a worldwide rock star. He's going to the Middle East. They've sold out a 55,000-seat stadium uh, in wow. water uh, for this guy. So listen to his, Dr. Jordan Peterson, fascinating guy. Yeah. Uh, no, um, it's so great you, that he hasn't that. been totally canceled yet because, uh, the, the you know, you talk about people oh, that... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, catch him on Fox and Friends, hear him on radio mid-mornings, and uh, be sure to watch him on One Nation every Saturday night. Brian, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Frank. Got a big guy. Uh, got Jimmy Fallon, got Mark Thiessen, Governor Burgum, uh, David Brooks of the New York Times, Matt Whitaker, uh, all coming your way. So wow. it's going to be a great radio show, too. You know, David Brooks in the New York Times is not necessarily somebody that uh, that folks would consider a a typical Brian Kilmeade guest. But you're having him on to talk about that column about how America got so mean, right? Yeah, he wrote a book about values, and I don't have to agree with everything someone says. I yeah, I love a it. I think show. it's great, and I appreciate his intellect. But I do think that he's become a Trump hater, uh, and I'll ask him. I mean, for conservatives to hate Trump, that's fine. But to hate everything he's done is really anti-conservative. So uh, I'll look forward uh, to hearing that interview. Be, everything. Th- so gonna, we'll talk about. I'm going to wake up early to hear that. One. Break, Frank. Brian, you want to get rid of me? Thank so you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll do 15 seconds of him, fame. Sir. Thank you, my friend. Uh, 15 seconds of fame. Straight ahead. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. Hypocrites, an instant classic if ever there was one. Time now for you to be heard on any subject you'd like for 15 seconds. Call in at 800-848-9222 for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Rusty! Yeah, Sid did a great job interviewing that rat, stool pigeon, Scaramucci. 
What would you do? That guy would go through you like Grant took Richmond. Sit. James. You know, there's a gay reporter here in Pittsburgh at Channel 2, David Hotfield. He self-professed homosexual. Is he going to teach your children this morning at KDK TV Radio in Pittsburgh? Mike. Alan West for president. Alan West for president. Look him up. Read about him. Hear about him. Alan West. Sam. This is a moron. This is a moron. Sparky. Yes, you and your friend Joe. Hey, Frank, it's Joe from Unconscious. I'm sending prayers out to my wife on her surgery today. Love you, Amy. Absolutely. Amen. Robert. Hey, Frank, would you consider interviewing Dick Wolf, creator of Law & Order and other terrific shows, or Chuck Lorre, creator of the comedy series Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men, yeah, or I, would you consider interviewing David Chase? I'd love to have all three of them on. Those would all be great interviews. Finally, Rocco. All right, finally, E. Frank. Yes, uh, Frank, you're considered as Reverend uh, Frank Morano of the Universal Church of Life, and now you believe you're superstar Frank Morano. I do not use Sir Knight of the Fraternal Order of the Knights. That's Lens Later on. Thanks for today. Frank Morano, good day.